What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another episode of Just Friends. As always, I'm your host, Mitchell Embry, and I'm excited to say that this week we are back in the studio. The Zoom podcasts were good while they lasted, but I'm excited to be back. You'll notice the fidelity of the recordings is going to significantly improve, which I'm excited about. It's something I pride myself on here at Just Friends. It sounded nice. And this week's guest had a perfect voice for radio. Many of you guys will know him. He graduated from PRP in 2007, the same year as me. We had lots of classes together. It's Mr. Daryl Young. In high school, we called him DJ, but these days he goes by lots of titles. He's the programming manager at the Muhammad Ali Center, where he runs a youth program that you'll get to hear a lot about in this podcast. And at the time of the recording, he was a candidate running for the Metro Council position for District 4. Full disclosure... Since our conversation, we actually learned that Daryl did not win that position. It will instead be filled by another PRP grad, Mr. Jacory Arthur. But if I know Daryl, I know he's not going to get discouraged. He's going to remain positive. He's going to keep pushing forward. And after you guys get the chance to listen to our conversation, I think you're going to realize uh, what an amazing guy he is. Um, definitely a man of character. A great conversationalist. It really was a privilege to get this chance to catch up with him and have this conversation. Guys, I'm going to do things a little bit differently this week. Um, Before we head over to Daryl, I want to remind everybody, um, please make sure you're following the Facebook page and following the Instagram page. Give us a like on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you're interested, check out the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Mitch Makes Podcasts, where if you enjoy what you're listening to, you can support the show and make sure we keep getting awesome guests like the one we have today. Um, so without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce to you our friend, Mr. Daryl Young. We out here in the sexy um, studio. You got me looking it up. We're getting intimate. I like it. Come on. Let's, let's, let's keep this going. Let's, let's, let's get a little weird. Let's do it. You know, you were the first person whom I thought to myself, I should probably do some research. <laughs> <laughs> to be perfectly honest, because like I know like a little bit of your background and I know what you've been going on, what's been going on in your life recently. Mm-hmm. And just like I was like, I should probably not walk into this blind. <laughs> all right. So, Daryl, what's up, man? What's going on, Mitch? Not too much, dude. You know, not a lot at all, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a whole whole pandemic outside. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. It's hard to do anything right now. It's like. Things have started to slowly open back up again. Sarah and I went to a restaurant. Ooh, where'd you go? We went to the Texas Roadhouse down there on Dixie okay. Highway. Um, and that was a really interesting experience. It was the first time we'd been to a restaurant in probably months. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was nice. You know, it's kind of getting some normalcy back. But, you know, honestly, I've been cooped up in the house since pretty much February. And that's been really crazy. You know, most of my outside experience has been, you know, going to Kroger, coming back, going to Kroger, coming back. <laughs> a few a few restaurants have been open or trying to do like curbside pickup, but it's it's like so weird, like going back outside now and knowing that like the Rona is still really here. Like it's not gone anywhere. Like we still got like a pandemic outside. So Yeah, but that's a weird thing about it is because I mean, there was always the twenty four hour news cycle. Mm-hmm. And somehow we managed to stay focused on Corona for a lot longer than we we usually are able to stay focused. But with everything else that's been going on recently, it's kind of taken the um, 
the focus away from coronavirus. But you're right. Like it hasn't gone anywhere. It's still there. And I read something today that uh, cases in Florida are popping back off again, which, you know, is as to be expected. Oh, Florida. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I know. But I don't want to dive straight into the meat of everything yet. I would love to get the opportunity to get everybody to know you before we really jump in. So so I know you because we went to PRP together. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd really love to know, where did you where did you start off as far as like school? Where did you go to elementary school? So I went to Mill Creek Elementary, which is now Mill Creek Academy. Okay. Um, and they're not even like, so when I went there, like the colors were, just to date myself, uh, the, <laughs> the colors were maroon and white and now they're like purple and gold. They're like lions now. When I was there, it was a cub. Uh, but I went there from elementary to third grade. And then I actually tested out of Mill Creek. So I transferred from Mill Creek to King Elementary for fourth and fifth grade. Um, and then went from King to no middle and then from no to PRP. Okay, cool. So what was that? Was that like you took the advanced program class or and test and then they didn't have advanced program at the school you were at? So you went to one that had the advanced Basically, program? Basically, I was just a little smart ass and I was like too smart <laughs> for my own good. And I was like answering questions before anybody could, you know, get the question out. and be like, God damn it, Daryl, get out of here. Go, go on somewhere. So you didn't know. So you were there with like Jake and Casey and mm-hmm. all those guys. Yeah. Cool. All right, cool. That's awesome. And then you were at PRP and we were in advanced classes together. I don't know if you'll remember this. I just remember this one story. Um, you and myself and TJ Edwards. I don't know. We we had some type of project. I think it was for Miss Burns. No, it wasn't Miss Burns. Miss Bryant. Miss Bryant. The, the yes. History. Yes. Project. Yeah. And we all went to Dave Vandelberg's like parents. Uh, his dad's company building, and mm-hmm. and I don't remember if we actually did any school. Like there was supposed to be a project happening, but I think we all just ended up hanging out the whole time and goofing off. Uh, but that was really kind of one of the only experiences that you and I really had hanging out. So I think part of that project, there was a historic figure who might have been alleged to do illicit drugs. Yes. And I think we might have tried to recreate that on film. Ah. Uh... I know exactly what you're talking about. We did do that. Yes, we did. Yes. Yeah. Oh, man. We had a little bit of fun. Yeah. I think being in advanced classes, you have just a teensy little bit more leeway with things like that. You can... There's definitely some privilege, right? Oh, they're just precocious young minds. Exactly. Exactly. I believe I took you home from that experience i think i drove you home from that you probably did and i think that that was one of the really the only times in high school that we really hung out a lot i hung out a lot with tj i played football so i hung out with those football guys who was your main group of friends in high school so i was kind of just like the cool guy that just kind of got along with everybody yeah um so you know you guys uh shout out to my man uh richard woodford who I have never seen since high school because he <laughs> refused to get a Facebook or a MySpace or a, smart. Exactly. Or uh, what was it? Um, I think Lie Journal was hot when we were in high school still. I don't think I had one of those. Um, I did all of them. I did MySpace, my yearbook, you know, anything to see, anything to see, to see like, you know, what was out there and, and stuff like that. I had a MySpace. Um and then I, d- I did Facebook in like 2007 because I was going into college. And so I felt, because at the time you'll remember it was like, you're not supposed to have a Facebook unless you have a college yeah. thing. So the, I got it. Once we got a college email address, I started my Facebook. Um, so I know my, I know I got my Facebook senior year because I have some really terrible <laughs> senior, <laughs> senior year pictures on my Facebook still. 
but I think even like we were in high school, I think AIM was still hot. I think we were still doing like AIM yes. and stuff. I loved AIM. I still use my AIM email address. Really? Big Mitch 61 with two G's. Oh, that's sexy. Oh, no. There's so much shame in that. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. Like, I use it as my catch-all email. Like, the thing that, the place where I get sent spam. Um, But it still exists, and I still use it. So, you'll appreciate this, Mitch, because you work with young people. Um, and I work with young people. And they constantly date me and make me feel extremely old. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were talking one day about internet and I'm old enough to remember when internet came on a disc in the mail, like, cause my parents were like really cheap and we wouldn't spend money. Like I didn't have, I didn't have like dial up or not even dial. I didn't have like high speed internet until mm-hmm. like maybe like junior year of high school. And so instead of like paying for internet, like you would get those like free, like 10 hour, like samples on like, of like net zero and Juno and Netscape navigator. You could like, get them in like the checkout line at Kroger. Yeah. Or, like, these came to, like, to the house. Though. They would like, just mm-hmm. mail them, like, a little 10-hour. Because they, they had, like, the 10,000-hour or the 1,000-hour. Like, this was, like, the cheapest, yeah. like, shittiest version of internet you can get. And you had to, like, upload those every month, and you would have 10, like, hours of internet. <laughs> and I tried to explain it to, to my kids, and they were like, whoa, Mr. Young, that, like, Daryl, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like, what do you mean you only had 10 hours of internet? Like... So you had one day worth of internet. <laughs> but, or like try to explain to them like when you have like dial up, like you can't use the phone Mm-mm. and the internet at the same time. Nope. Mind blown. I know. Have you ever seen those videos of those kids trying to use a rotary phone? Oh yeah. And they can't figure out how to do it. I had, uh, a, I had an intern one time and we tried to get her to mail an actual piece of mail <laughs> and she couldn't figure it out. <laughs> she was like, I think I did this right. She ended up mailing it back to us. That's hilarious. <laughs> You know, young people, they do, they have a really interesting um, experience because of technology. I had a lot of students who couldn't read an analog clock. Mm. And, I, and I'll be honest, because by the time we were coming up, digital clocks were pretty much everywhere. And yeah. I always remember it's taken me some time to read a digital or like reading an analog clock. Mm. Um, but I had students who couldn't do it at all. And so, you know, the school, like, they don't have digital clocks. They got the right. same analog clocks that they had when we were in high school. Probably f- they were 20 years old then. And uh, all the kids were, they'd be pissed because they couldn't tell what time it was. Probably had Mr. S- probably like Mr. Swan's, like, personal clocks he had in the, in the school. <laughs> you know, I taught at PRP for two years. Really? Yes. How, how did that go? It was amazing. I loved it there. Um. That that community is really strong, um, and it's an interesting community. It it was different because I taught there for two years, and then I taught at DOS for two years, and the dynamic was totally different. Um, but I loved it at PRP because by now all of our teachers are administrators. Right. So like my bosses were like Tracy Vines, Jason Stinson, uh, Jason Cook. So all those people who were teachers when we were there, they were just like my bosses now. And they remembered me from when I was a kid. So that was, was really Was Miss cool. Brian still there? No, she'd right. retired. Okay. Not a, ton of, not a ton of people were still teaching from when we were there. It's, th- it's still weird to like have them like add you on Facebook. Because I'm still really bad. Like my teachers, like I've had professors I've, I've become friends with now or like colleagues with now. And I still have a hard time calling them by their first name. It just feels so awkward. Yeah. Brent Braun. It was really, really hard for me to transition into calling him Brent. We were actually out. I can't remember where. Well, we went to went to this little wine place. I can't remember what it's called. There's a little wine place in Nulu. And I ran into him there. And I was like, Mr. Braun. He was like, 
Mitch, we've been working together for a year and a half. You can call me Brent. Was, like, was it Nouvelle? It was Nouvelle. That's exactly what it was. Nouvelle is nice, isn't it's, it? It's really nice. They got that nice outside patio where you can sit and drink. Yeah, that place is awesome. So after PRP, you went to UofL, right? Uh-huh. And what did you study there? So I actually applied to UofL to be a business major. And I realized that I would not be happy doing that. Um, and this is, I didn't know anything about college. My parents were just like, you're going to go to college. And you get out the house when you when you graduate. So I was like, oh, okay. So I, I didn't know how it worked. My parents didn't go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had family that did, but they weren't local. They were like in Ohio and Georgia and stuff like that. So I didn't really understand the process. So when I had, you know, applied to U of L and got in as a business major, I thought that was it. Like I just had to, I have to do this. And I just, you know, I can't do anything else. But I figured out how to switch and I ended up taking uh, secondary education. So my degree is in secondary education with a focus in social studies, and then I minored in Pan-African studies. Okay, cool. So my experience, in co- I've talked about my experience in college a bunch of times on here, but I ended up getting a bachelor's degree in sociology, and then I did a master's degree in secondary education in math. And sometimes I wish I had done social studies, because my experience teaching math was really challenging. There's something about that specific content area that doesn't lend itself to, I guess, to my personality. But if I'd been able to talk about, if I'd been able to talk about history, it was more narrative, more like storytelling based. And I think I would have been better about that. So I actually wanted to do English. I wanted to be an English teacher. Mm -hmm. I love books. I love reading because I'm a huge nerd. Um, I'm pretty sure these listeners uh, who knew me all those years ago know, huge nerd. But I loved books, but I realized like I hate grammar. Like, and I didn't want to teach grammar. So I was like, like I remember being in Miss uh, Walsh's class. I was like, I hate this goddamn class. I was in that class with you, I think. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. The, the best part of that class was watching her and Casey fight back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> that was like our daily entertainment, like watching her and Casey go back and forth every day. Man. So did you ever like pursue a career as in JCPS or as like a teacher or anything like that? So that's really weird. So I, I did my student teaching at Central. Okay. Um, I loved Central. Yeah. I had I had an amazing time. I loved my uh, my uh, mentor teacher. Um, I, you know, got along with the faculty and staff really well. I had a terrible um, um, evaluator. Like mm-hmm. she was like trash. Gotcha. Um, but other than that, I had a great experience, and it seemed like everything was lining up. Um, everything was lining up for me to teach there. But then all of a sudden, Seneca had invested like 10 grand in this mock like courtroom to expand their law magnet. And central's big thing is their law magnet. Mm. So they got like real spooked and like, Oh shit, we got to compete. So instead of hiring um, for their uh, open position in the social studies department, they went ahead and hired two part-time attorneys to expand their law program magnet. Mm. So there was no job there anymore. And for me, I remember like being in my education courses and hearing like my, my colleagues and my cohort talking about their experience. And it just sounded like I don't want to teach in a space where I can't be myself. Like they were like, we had to teach by the book. I, was like, I never used the uh, the teacher's guide. Like I had a teacher, we had a relationship. He was like, as long as you teach to to the standard, you can do whatever you want. Right. So I was creating all kind of my own lesson plans and like going really like really off script. It's like as long as you can just put it to the core standards, the KY core standards, do what you want. Yeah, and that's really that's the reality of what teaching is supposed to be because you're supposed to have autonomy. But you're definitely right when you're a new teacher. Um. And and it makes sense. I mean, with how much 
how important education is and how much it's been struggling recently, they want to make sure new teachers are doing a great job, but you're held accountable and creativity is not necessarily always, uh, encouraged, encouraged, but thank you for helping me out with that. Yeah. But, um, to your point. So when that happened, I didn't get the job at central. Um, I farted around for a little bit. Uh, I actually, uh, ended up being a AmeriCorps Vista for a year before I realized you only get 10 grand a year. Okay. <laughs> I, thought, I was like, oh, I got this brand new job. It sounds fancy. It sounds cool. It had like a big fancy title. I was like outreach coordinator. And I was like, oh, you get paid 10 grand a week. And I was like, oh, they're encouraging you to get on food stamps. I was like, God damn, I got a degree and, you know, went to some debt for a job that only pays 10 grand. So I did that for a little bit. And then I actually, after that job, after that ended, I actually ended up working for JCPS really weirdly because I got picked up for this grant project. Mm-hmm. I was a mentor coordinator for a program that worked with uh, young people who had been recently adjudicated from uh, JCYC, um, youth detention. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to make everything work out, they placed the job at JCPS to cover the benefits. So like your health insurance and all that kind of stuff. And then like, so I was a JCPS employee for like a year and eight months. Um, so I was an adult ed. Gotcha. Well, that's really cool, though. Did you? How did you feel about that? Was that a really? Was that a good experience for you? It was a good experience, but it was stressful. I imagine it was uh, because the city, you know, had signed up uh, for this program. It was a national program. It was like you know, with the U.S. Department of Labor, and it was like this really innovative program um, to again work with young people who had recently been, you know, you know, had made some bad decisions, but trying to get their life back on track. Um, but the issue with Louisville was to compete because we like we like there was only like five cities selected for the whole entire project. So it was like L.A., um, like Detroit, like Nashville and like two other cities. Um, and the idea was that this person that had the job that I had had to recruit like adult mentors for these kids. Mm. And every other city only had to get one hundred and twenty five because it was like one to four mentoring. But uh, our mayor signed up and said, oh, fuck that. Uh, we can get 500. We're going to have one-to-one mentoring. So I had to find 500 adults to mentor 500 kids. Uh, so That like, sounds like a, a crazy challenge. And that was on top of the job you were actually already doing at the same time, I imagine, right? Yeah. That is something, that's a trend that I definitely saw in the education system. It was like, you have this job, and if that's all you do, you're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. So you left University of Louisville. You spent some time working for JCPS, and then eventually you you got a job working for Muhammad Ali Center, correct? So I took a short pit stop at U of L because I had this idea of, hey, I want to go back to school. Okay, I found a job at U of L. Okay, I, like, cool. I, I can do the whole like get my tuition paid for while I go to work. Oh, um, but then it was like a really crazy time at U of L, like a lot of turnover, and I was like, I can see the ship sinking right now. So it's like to be on the Titanic, but I, I was able to get on the life ship before it went down. Gotcha. Um, so I was only actually there for 10 months. Right. And so you worked for the Office of Diversity and Inclusion there, right? Mm. That's cool. What did you do there? So it was my job to work with the schools of dentistry, public health, nursing, um, and medicine uh, to recruit a diverse group of students. So gotcha. like, I did um, our summer programs, our summer projects. Um, and then like I would go and do like recruitment tours at like different you know schools across the state. So I would go like to Murray and like, hey, we need some kids who are interested in doing um, a medical program or, you know, going to med school once they get done with their undergrad and, you know, trying to find some high school kids to put into the pipeline and getting them to go and consider like a, the medical field. So, That's pretty cool. Talking about diverse people who made it through medical field, Nick George, 
Shout out to Nick George, Dr. Nick George. Shout out to Nick George, who lived on my floor of my apartment. Oh, really? Uh-huh. So I actually, got, I actually watched him like go through like his last like two years um, of med school before he did his residency. Really? I'm not going to lie. I've pestered him a large amount to try to get him on this podcast. Uh, I've never had a doctor on one. That would just be cool. Um, and also, have you seen his art? Yes, his I art have. is amazing. And uh, I think he'd be an awesome guest. So, uh, Nick, if you're listening to this, which I'm, I'm sure that you're not, holler at me, dude. Let's do a podcast together. He's gonna like crush. He's gonna like crush and be like the best person you ever had. Like, I gonna, imagine he would be. Yeah. Like this podcast is gonna be like terrible. Like in comparison, it's uh, already great. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. Appreciate it, man. So how you were at? Uh, you were at the Office of Diversity and Inclusion at University of Louisville. And how long were you there? Yeah. So I literally got there in April. And then I left in January. Really? How come? Just not not the right fit, or just you said there was a lot of turnover. There was a lot of turnover. It was some crazy stuff going on at U of L. Like I love my school. Like I'm a proud Cardinal, L one C four all the time. You know, I feel like there's a lot of like wildcat, which I like to call wild rat listeners on your <laughs> show. But I'll say that, and I'll stand by that. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not a UK fan at all. You uh, know that is true because I had Casey on, and he definitely is. Um, I think I think the Cats fans are, have just been more outspoken. So I'm glad that you can hear for, to represent. Ryan Ray will appreciate that a lot. Shout out to Ryan, man. Yeah. Um, it's, it's also, again, weird working with kids, like, you know, doing their letters for recommendation and stuff like that and, you know, being their references for schools. And they're like, oh, uh, Daryl, can you sign my um, letter? Can you write me a letter? Like, where are you trying to go? Kentucky? Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, of course I will. But, like, one, actually, one of my favorite students went to, is at UK right now. And really? It, it, like, hurts my heart to see her there all the time. <laughs> And I was like, I was like, Haley, I will come to your graduation, but I will, I will hate it. I will sit there, me mug the entire time. Having success there, though, I hope. Oh, she's doing heck yeah, awesome. That's right. Uh, um, but yeah, just you know, it wasn't a, it was, it's a really frustrating time to be at U of L. Um, there was a lot of climate issues. It's like in terms of like you know how people were feeling and mm-hmm. they feel included and really trying to work through all that bureaucracy and red tape. Yeah, because the governor at the time kind of had it out. For the university, yeah. I mean, let's let's say let's call it what it was. Yeah, so this, this, we, we were still under Matt Bevan at that yeah. time, so you know, crazy time to be in a university setting. Um, we talk about a diversity, um, you know, department. Talk about in terms of funding getting cut. You know, we had face budget cuts. Um, we had uh, you know an abrasive administration um, going against us, and I still wanted to stay there. I think the only reason I really really jumped ship. Was and that sounds like real bad. Like I feel like I was like, oh, I turned my back, like <laughs> like I sat him in the back. It was actually really bad because I did it like after Christmas, and my boss was on like a three week vacation when I like you know made my like my notice that I was leaving. So she had like sent me a Christmas card and a bottle of bourbon. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I don't want to tell you. I left. <laughs> That's nice of her though. Hey, you know what? This is what I learned because I left. I left uh, JCPS in February. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened that it was like a month before COVID. So it honestly ended up not really mattering anyway. It was probably three weeks later and then school was just out for good. But I didn't know that going into it. And I was leaving halfway through a semester. Um, With my kids, it was extremely emotional and it was extremely challenging. And I spent all, I spent like the entire like week up to my, my leaving preparing for that. It was a four day week. Um, and every single day was just all about why I was leaving and like my relationship with the kids. And I still have conversations with them and stuff. But my coworkers 
were super supportive. And I was not expecting that. And it really made me appreciate even more than I already appreciated the faculty at DOS. Because, you know, DOS gets a lot of bad rap. Yeah. Because they have a lot of challenges that they're facing. And But the people there are amazing. And um, so I imagine... <laughs> I imagine she still would have sent you that bottle of bourbon even if she had known. Well, you know, it's, I, I joke because uh, I'm actually, when we talk about like supportive staff and also Louisville being a small city. Yeah. Um, one of my, so the assistant director of that department, uh, he was there. So I told him, I told my department head, uh, me and him actually do diversity training right now for another program. So I see him all the time. Okay. Um, and I think really the reason, the biggest thing for me was I just saw a career move. Um, okay. Because my, my, if you look at my resume, I had all these coordinator titles in my job positions. I was, I was an outreach coordinator. I was a mentor coordinator. I'm a program coordinator. Um, and for me, you know, for my mentors and people who have like, you know, kind of helped guide me through my career, they were like, if you want to move up, you have to get a, you know, a position that allows you to manage people and have staff. Um, and so when I saw an actual manager title out there, somebody sent me in my email to reply for it. And I was like, oh, you have a staff, you have, you know, budgetary responsibilities. So I was like, oh, this is like the next career move for me. Gotcha. And you became a program manager at the Muhammad Ali Center, right? So, That's awesome. What was that? What, what does that job entail exactly? Cause I'll be honest I, and I'm going to, and I'm going to be, and I'm ashamed of this. I've never been there. You know, uh, you know, you got to come. You know, I should. I need to. Just you know, ask me. It's gonna be. I don't know. I don't know. When we're, so we're opening up. We're, we're opening back up on July first. Um, yeah. Just just uh, tell me you're here, and I'll give you a whole tour and everything. Hell yeah, man. But that uh, sounds awesome. But for me, so I am the manager of programming, um, which is which is kind of like coincides with education. Okay. Um, so I do a lot of youth development work. Part of the reason I took the job was because I saw that I got to do so much youth work because I've always still had that itch to do teaching. So I never actually got to be in the classroom mm-hmm. full time. So this job came with overseeing two youth programs. Um, so I do youth programming, youth facilitation. Um, I do curriculum development. I do community programming, community outreach. Um, I do a lot of diversity training around some of our core principles that we utilize um, for people who really want to immerse themselves in Muhammad Ali's legacy. Um, really what I tell people is, how do I translate this larger than life figure who was so inspirational um, and so game changing in so many arenas. When we talk about sports, we're talking about public service, we're talking about uh, social justice. Like, how do I make that like tangible for people? Right. Mm-hmm. So like there are people who want to come and like utilize the Ali Center for a program, for a corporate event. And they want somebody to talk to them about Muhammad's legacy or there's young people who come to our programs and are trying to become, you know, um, leaders. And how can we amplify their voice? And it's just like really trying to figure out how do we take this dude who everybody knows and how do we do something worthwhile with his name and his his, his image? That's awesome. And, you, you know, we, we glossed over something that I wanted to touch on. Were you a part of a fraternity while you were at University of Louisville? I am. I am. I'm actually. I, I guess. Yeah. I guess you could consider yourself still a member of that fraternity. So yeah. I, I'm like I'm like frat bro out right now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, like, I, I have been like real leisure uh, since uh, COVID. Uh, most people know me. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, my Twitter handle is GQ Blue. So everybody knows me for like suits and stuff like that. I have not wore real clothes <laughs> in like months. Like in the in this whole time, I've actually been on furlough since March 16th. I have maybe worn jeans three times since March, and I wore a suit one time. Uh, but yeah, so I pledged Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated. 
Um, I pledged in 2009, um, Beta Beta Xi chapter. Um, we actually have alumni chapter. So I'm a part of an alumni chapter now. Um, I have this really cut up Sigma shirt on. Uh, you can see my Sigma tattoo on my arm. I'm actually the president of our, of our alumni chapter right now. Oh, that's now. rad. So I had to do some research. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned that Sigmas are known for like, the main thing they're known for is service to their community. And I also read through uh, kind of like some of like, I guess it's like a a, a, a book that they give to all new pledges. Mm-hmm. And I was just really inspired by, I mean, like the things that jumped out at me, words like integrity, mm-hmm. words like, um, oh gosh, I wish I could remember them now. It was, it was just a lot of, it talked a whole lot about just character, about personal character and building personal character. When I think about you, I think about a person with character. Um, I see your social media presence. I see the way that you carry yourself. I see the way that you're involved in your community through the job that you have now, but then also in lots of other ways. Do you think that came from your experience as a Sigma or was that something that was started before that? Was that something that's always been a part of your life? So first off, I'm, I'm so glad, Mitch, that uh, when you said Sigma, you thought of character. Uh, so the so the inside joke um, for, uh, you know, Sigmas is, or the not so great things that people associate, uh, we're considered country bumpkins. Okay. <laughs> so that is, uh, that is the joke on Sigma. Though. Like we are the country, uh, you know, uh, uncouth. Okay. Um, but no, uh, I think for me, I was like really trying to figure out who I was in high school. Um, and I don't know why I was so serious in high school, but I always, I've always had this kind of serious kind of uh, perspective. And I really just wanted to find things um, that would help me like be a better person and like give back. So I was like really just interested in like, how do I become involved? Um, how can I give back? Like that was like really important for me. So like when I got to college, uh, because also I, I was hanging on by like the skin of my teeth in, in, uh, in, uh, PRP. So I don't know if a lot of people know, I almost got expelled from PRP. Um, I had a, when we finished, um, our first semester, like freshman year, I had a 1.0 GPA. Really? There are so many people who I've talked to who were in classes with us who had very little success in high school, myself included. So I'm not surprised to hear that, but. Do you, did you turn that around or what What was that experience like? So for me, um, what I will say is I was actually the brainy kid most of my life. So I was like the straight A student. Uh, what happened was when I got to eighth grade, I finally couldn't do math anymore. Like I don't mm-hmm. know what happened. Me and numbers was like, this ain't it, chief. I don't know why. Uh, but like math became a real struggle. And I never knew like how to handle that. And then, you know, one of the things that... Um, I can realize now that I still struggle with as an adult is that I didn't know how to ask for help. So if I struggle with anything, it was just like, uh, uh, I would just freeze. Um, and so what had happened in uh, eighth grade for me was I lied to my parents for over a year. Oh, really? And so like I was failing, I was failing math and because I was failing math, I was failing other things as well. And my parents, you know, straight A student, they had no reason to ever doubt me. Uh, so I was like, oh, you know, uh, the printer broke. We didn't get report cards. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, we moved to trimesters now, so we only get one report card a semester. And they believed that all the way up until maybe March. Wow. Um, and then they were like, you know what? This doesn't make sense. Uh, you haven't had a report card all year. I don't know what's going on. We're going to your school right now. <laughs> and I was freaking the hell out. <laughs> and I remember, I was like, well, I know the shit is about to hit the fan. And I remember being in eighth grade. Uh, and I remember, um, 
I was like, well, in my mind, my, you know, eighth grade brain, you know, logic was that, well, if I'm naked, they can't hit me. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's true, though. Well, no, I guess not with your parents. Maybe I, with anybody it, else. That would have been weird, right? I'm like, you know, everything's <laughs> hanging out. Do you really want to hit me right now? You could, like, leave some, like, really bad scars. Um, and so I remember, like, getting in the shower. And, like, I just knew, like, they were coming home. And I was kind of, like, bracing myself. Like, the water had gotten cold by this toy. And I just remember, like, just standing there and just, like, kind of waiting. And, like, I hear, like, the door just, like break open and like my dad's in there he's like where the hell are you at i know you're here it's like you trying to hide i was just like in the shower just like yep i sure am hiding <laughs> and like, i just remember like hearing him like go through the house and like yeah you you want to lie you want to do this well you're not gonna do that and he was like taking the tv out of my room he was like ripping out the playstation from the wall like, i could hear just like everything crashing mm-hmm. uh, and it was that carried over into ninth grade year um, and I just didn't, I, you know, I wasn't really trying to school. I was more concerned about being popular. I got teased a lot. So I was like, no, I want to be the pop. I want to be like the guy on campus. I want to be like the big guy, you know? Um, but like I said, I ended up getting a 1.0 GPA. Um, and so I had to go to like ESS, like after school programs. So I think that kind of hurt me from, you know, like buying off a lot of you guys. Cause I was like doing like ESS four days a week to, mm-hmm. you know, get my GPA. I went to summer school twice, like in the freshman year. Um, and, and, um, sophomore summers, I had to do summer school just to stay at PRP, just so I didn't get kicked out. Yeah. And that goes to show like how you always feel like as a young person that the grass is always greener, I suppose, because I would never have assumed that about you. Um, I would have just assumed, I guess kind of like I would have assumed about all my other peers who were in advanced classes that they had it figured out. They were just like coasting through. Mm. And I was struggling because of something that was inherently wrong with myself. And that's one been one of the great things about this podcast that I've learned is that, no, that is a challenging time for everybody. And it really is like it's a coming of age kind of situation where like you have to really figure out who you are. And uh, there are some failures involved in that. It's, it's, for me, I don't think I really started feeling like myself again until junior year. Like Miss Bryant's class, I remember like, oh, yeah, I remember like I'm actually really good at school. Like. This makes sense again. Yeah. Like, Mrs. Swan's class, I remember, like, just being a struggle. I remember we used to all pass back those, like, those cheat sheets and, like, answer sheets in the back trying to do that homework for his yeah. class. Dude, that was a hard fucking class. That was a freshman class, and I'd never had a class like that before. Dave Vandelberg and I talked about this. You could do every single assignment that he assigned and still couldn't get an A. Oh, yeah. You had to do extra stuff that he wasn't going to tell you to do. Well, I mean, he told you, you're going to have to do this, but he wasn't going to make you, he wasn't going to ask you to do it, he wasn't going to assign it. You had to go do it yourself. Um, I barely passed that class. I got a D in that class. I got a D. I remember more like the pranks in that class and like the <laughs> cheating on the homework in that class and actual learning. Like I remember uh, somebody broke a feed, like a, the uh, chicken head, chicken on somebody's head. Oh, yeah. I don't remember who that was, but somebody like took one of those like chicken embryos and like busted it on somebody's head. Yeah. We were so mean. Uh, do you remember that that um, the thing we did with the fruit flies? Yeah. Uh, so we had these little we had those little tubes full of fruit flies, and the whole point I think was to like you would put two fruit flies with two phenotype expressions, and then they'd have babies, and their babies. Yeah. Would, it was like supposed to be like a real life example of like a Punnett square. Mm-hmm. And me and TJ took Tiffany Shaw. Tiffany, if you're listening, to this, I'm sorry that we did this to you. <laughs> we took her tubes of uh, her little flies and we you know those little gas things yeah we stuck the gas tube in there and turned it on and just pumped Jesus the gas Christ. and killed all of her little flies we were so mean 
I remember I remember uh, somebody when we did the um, the uh, the frogs. Mm-hmm. Like the frogs have like a really good circulatory system. So you can understand like how the heart works. Yeah, and taking the adrenaline and like. You like you knocked you knocked the the frogs out with uh with ether yeah um so they were still breathing and so you were supposed to take a very small bit of uh adrenaline and like put it into his heart but like he were like taking like twenty cc's thirty cc's of of like adrenaline like straight to the heart and these things were like the the frog was like jumping and like going crazy and it was like pinned down to the sheet I was like wow this is wild also the nastiest thing was the fetal pigs that was gross because I remember Mr. Swan would like take his pen and like poke around in it. Yeah. He had like this really bad habit of like putting his pen in his mouth, so he would like poke in that pig, and then like do his little hungry like, mm, put his pen in his mouth like, mm, and like write all your paper with it. It's like, Ugh, yes. that's so nasty. Yes, he was just a special type of person, the most special. <laughs> and I actually like Mister Swan, but I just like I have the most vivid high school memories of his class. Well, his class really, in retrospect was a crazy awesome class. I mean, we did so many labs. Mm-hmm. We did tons of labs. We had fetal pigs. Um I and I remember the frog one because that one was that one was uniquely brutal because he would he would like you said he would knock them out with ether and then he took a pen and like broke their cervical spine with mm-hmm. it so that they would be like paralyzed mm-hmm. but their internal organs were still that just something about that to me now Seems strange. And see, I never knew about the the paralyzing part. I just remember, like, you know, you would knock them out, and then you would have to pin um, their 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 fins down to the uh, table so they wouldn't move. Mm-hmm. But like, they're alive, and like, we are just pumping them <laughs> with adrenaline. Like, this is like the the weirdest coke rush ever <laughs> yeah. for them. Like, that frog was probably just like chilling in the house. All of a sudden, it's like, what the hell happened? He's well, like, you know. Well, you also, I mean, like, yeah, we were definitely pumping that into their hearts, but we had sliced their yeah chest wide chest open. wide open too. It was crazy, man. But that class was awesome. But so you, you, I think what you're saying here is you would attribute um, this drive that you have for for investing in your community to your time um, at U of L as a Sigma. You know, as a Sigma, um, I was really involved. Um, in retrospect, I realized because one of the things that I realized about U of L was that it wasn't a positive climate for a lot of people. It wasn't a very inviting climate for a lot of people. Like we would see that in the mess uh, students' replies. Like it was so many people who felt isolated, who didn't feel welcome at U of L. Um, and I was like, well, why was my experience so different? And I was involved in everything. And I was like, oh, I'm a Porter Scholar. You know, I'm involved in this student organization. I, you know, I pledge. You know, I'm a part of like all these things that come with built in communities with them. Um, but if you're a, a student who's going from class to class and, you know, trying to, you know, find your way, it was really treacherous at UofL. Commuting. Mm-hmm. That was my experience. Um, I would get up every morning at like seven o'clock. I would drive 25 minutes into UofL, park, and then ride the TARC bus around yeah. to my, go to class. Uh, once I was done with class, I'd go to the SAC. That was kind of fun. I had like s- some friend groups there, but if they weren't on campus, I was mostly by myself and then I'd go home. Mm-hmm. And, uh. It was. It was kind of an isolating experience. Like I, I didn't have a strong community, and it wasn't something that I sought out. It was something that honestly, because of my own personal, my just a lack of self esteem and a shyness and an, and an awkwardness that I felt about myself it was actually something I tried to avoid. I didn't want to get involved in the community because I was afraid that I was going to feel some type of shame. So it's it's interesting you talk about that idea of like you know feeling comfortable in your own skin. Um, 
because I feel like, so I'm 31 now. I keep on forgetting I'm 31 mm-hmm. because I feel like after I hit 30, like all oh, this doesn't feel like anything. Like 31 was such an inconsequential birthday, like barely remember that shit. Uh, so I forget that I'm about to be 32 in November. Gosh, I'm going to be 32 in January. So uh, was it Sagittarius? Capricorn, I think. Ah, gotcha. Um, yeah. But I really don't feel like I got comfortable in my own skin prior to about 26. I agree. And you want to know, I've thought a lot about that. That's about the time in men that our brains fully develop. And I feel like up to that point, I was just floundering. I had no clue. And I did, I still really didn't see like, um, how my own situation was 100% a product of the decisions that I was making and like, uh, the consequences of my own actions. And then finally 26 hit and I was like, shit, like if I want to, see meaningful change in my own life that means i need to to make meaningful change in my own life and that was really when i felt like i came into my own myself the worst part about it though is as i've kind of like navigated self-actualization i've learned that i actually know so little (laughs) (laughs) and i kind of sometimes feel like kind of like that lost kid like I know myself better than I've ever known myself, but I realize that I don't know myself at all. And there's so much more about me that there is for me to learn and so much more growth that needs to take place. And that, that is sometimes frightening. No, I can, I completely agree. Somebody who is really concerned about their own personal narrative and like, you know, has always felt like I have to do something great in Mm -hmm. life. uh, That's been a weight for me, but also like, I think for me, the the pressure was I felt like I had a very narrow definition of what a man was and what a cool person was and what a successful person was. So I was I felt like I was just like trying to force myself, you know, the, 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 the cliche uh, uh, round piece in a square uh, peg or whatever. Uh, I, I'm, I'm messing that thing up. I've had too much. Burden. No, I think you nailed it. I think okay. that's what it is. Yeah. Okay. yeah it's all right. Right. It's all good. Uh, but when I finally was like, you know what? Like. I remember the day I said, like, I'm weird. Like, I'm weird as shit. <laughs> and, like, before, like, I would never say that because, like, I don't want to be weird. I don't want to be the weird guy. I want to be the cool, suave. Like, no, Daryl, you're weird. And it's okay. Like, and you're awkward. And, like, when I started, like, owning that shit, I felt, like, so much more comfortable. And then people would be like, oh, Daryl, you're really cool. I'm like, no, I'm not. But, like, <laughs> you think I am because I finally, like, just stopped trying to, you know, I just embraced who I was instead of trying to, like, force myself to act a certain way. Well, I would say... That that's what makes you cool. Exactly. No, I, I definitely agree. And it's like when you start when you stop trying, it's like wow. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to tell that to kids like without any context. Like the the keys to life, kids don't try. Yeah, and just leave, leave it there. I'm like, oh, well, and they're all flunking out and stuff. No. Yeah, with kids, that's the hardest thing because that's the one thing I noticed more than anything else. Because I had the privilege for a couple of months while I was teaching of of doing one on one work with kids. And that was amazing. It was so awesome because I would have that kid as a kid, as a student in my class and they would be an asshole. And then I'd get them one on one and I'd be like, dude, you're cool. Why are you such an asshole <laughs> in class? And the real thing is they're posturing. Yeah. They're putting on a show for the people around them. They're trying to be the person that they think other people want them to be. You know, I, 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 I fully believe 100% that there is no such thing as a bad kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you just realize some of the things that kids go through, like and when they don't 
usually they're trying to protect themselves so they want to like you know i gotta be the funny guy i gotta be the cool guy because i don't want anybody to notice that i have some really traumatic shit going on at home right now so i gotta do whatever i can to deflect and make sure you don't ever ask me about that so i'm gonna act out you know whatever just so you don't ever ask me about that or really try to pry into that part of my to my to my to my being or who i am but it's so weird like you said when you work with young people just like just watching them development even if like they're not like acting out just seeing them like learn themselves is so weird like i've had kids in my program who i've had for like three years and i'm like wow you are so different now than you were three years ago Mm -hmm. and that's just so weird to like watch people develop when we have jobs like we have we can see that happen it's so amazing and so freaky yeah but it's also so rewarding Oh, yeah. And so meaningful. Um, Some of those kids that you think of as bad kids and you really get to have, when you get to sit down and have conversations with those kids and you really get to learn about what their experiences are, like there are so many people out there who would just throw a label onto these kids and call them a thug or call them this or that. And they have no idea what their experience has been like. And you, you nailed it. 90% of their behavior is just a coping mechanism. They're trying to protect themselves from because they've already experienced so much drama that they're just the last thing that they want is to experience more pain. So, you know, I have a perfect story for that. Um, and similar to kind of what you were just talking about when I was doing the mentor coordinating, I was very wary of, of getting older mentors just for the fact that a lot of them kind of came from this kind of authoritarian like you know, kind of background. And they grew up in an era when, you know, you know, kids were to be seen and not heard. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to dictate to you and yell at you. And that's kind of, the, you know, the relationship that adults have with, with, with young people. Um, and I had this really successful pairing um, of a mentor and a mentee. But at first it was really, really rocky um, because, you know, a lot of my kids were kids who did not take, you know, discipline well. Um, you had to you had to build some rapport before you could actually tell them anything. Um, and one of the, one of the uh, things in this kid's caseload was like was always late to school, always overslept. And so this mentor thinking they were going to be, um, you know, I guess, proactive or like, oh, I'm buying them an alarm clock. Mm-hmm. So because if they're if they're sleeping, they don't have an alarm clock. I'm buying them an alarm clock. Bought the alarm clock, didn't use it. And it was still just late. And it's like, why are you late? Like, wh- what is the problem? I've, I've, I have taken away your excuse of being late. You didn't have an alarm clock. I bought you one. And they finally, that student just broke down. and was like, look, my best friend got shot. And I am in trauma and I, all I do is sleep. Like I can't wake up. Yeah. I don't want to be awake. Cause uh, I don't want to think about it. Exactly. Yeah. And like once, once they actually like got to that point, completely revolutionized the way they interacted because like, wow. So now I'm not trying to just fix you or solve your problem. I'm seeing you not just as a problem, but actually as a whole person. And wow. Like if I, if my best friend got shot, I'd probably do the same exact thing. If not worse, trying to, you know, you know, use drugs or do anything else, you know, destructive to try to, you know, fill that void. So for this kid, it was just sleeping. Yeah. So, yeah. So probably one of the healthier things he could choose to do. Mm-hmm. That was an interesting, I was at DOS for two years and we had four students, two of whom were in my class who were murdered. And it just, I mean, there aren't really words. Um, And I'm sure there are, but I just don't have them to talk about just the way that that impacts you and the way that it impacts the culture of in the community that you're in because it's trauma. Mm -hmm. And like, and there's lots and lots of research 
to show how human beings respond to trauma. And somewhere along the way, though, these natural responses have been conflated into like signals of lack of character. Mm. And I don't know. And I, and I, and I don't, I guess it's maybe individuals who haven't had those experiences who are just misinterpreting those things. Um, but really once you see it, it becomes clear to, to what it really is. Um, and so I just want to let you know how much I appreciate the work that you do with young people. It's awesome. And I imagine it is really, really rewarding for you. Man, it's, it's the best thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah, it is. It is that cool. Um, like I've, I've cried in front of them many times cause it's, it's just such an awesome experience to, to, to see it. And you know, this as a teacher, like when you see like a, a young person, like get it, like the thing you're trying to get them to learn or understand, or like when you see them get it and run with an idea or a concept, you're like, this is like the most magical shit ever in my entire <laughs> life. Yeah. Because they're excited. Yeah. And because they see the value. Finally, they see the value in this thing that you, you've always understood that it had value, mm. but it was, it's helping them understand how they can apply that value to their own life. That's really meaningful. And then two, it's just it, one, it's just hard to impress young people. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so like when you see young people like actually like you, it's like, wow, I've done like the most complicated thing ever. Yeah. I do really genuinely think that I'll find myself back in a classroom someday. It's just, you know, what the pathway is along the road. And I'm sure, you, you know, even if you don't, for whatever reason, you know, I think it's been ingrained in you, the importance of working with young people. So I'm sure you're going to find that way. The universe is going to push you towards being able to be of influence to young people. Like for me, I was like, man, when I took that job, I, was like, I really need to be back in a classroom somehow. And for me, it was this job at the Ali Center getting to work with the Muhammad Ali Center Council of Students or the Max. And and I think that's awesome. But I think it needs to be said that that your contribution to your community does not stop at the work that you do at the Muhammad Ali Center and the work that you do with young people because you just recently, I guess, it won't really be finished until the 30th. Uh-huh. But you recently, you are in the final stretch of a a monumental uh, personal goal, I imagine, of running for district, uh, for Metro Council, for District 4. Uh-huh. So what was that process like? Tell me about that. <laughs> It was completely insane. <laughs> uh, so I have never run for political office. I never imagined myself to be a politician. I always said I would be too honest to be a politician. And I had way too many tattoos. So, you know, you always like see politicians out on the beach with their family. And they're like, oh, we have we have President Young over here, Councilman Young. And I'm like, oh, I have like these really radical tattoos and shit like that. So I didn't think I could ever do that. Uh, but I remember um, seeing that my councilwoman... Um, Barbara Saxon Smith was not running uh, for re-election, and like people were joking, like, "Oh, Daryl, you like you know everybody. You're the mayor of Louisville." Because like I know a lot of people because I work with a lot of people. So like when I see people, I usually don't. I usually anytime I'm out, I usually see at least one person. At least about seventy percent of the time I'm outside doing anything, like I'll see at least one person. Like, "Oh, hey, how's it going?" And people will, like be with me, and they're like, "Daryl, how do you know all these people?" And I'm like, "Well, I did this program or this project, or we had this thing going on." Um, and so like, I'd always kind of had this idea of wanting to do public service, but like, not really. And then I was like, oh, this is like a real thing. Like I could really like sign up for it. And like, I had no idea how any of it worked. Um, and so I kept on like asking people like, Hey, like, how do you do it? Should I do it? And I like talked to like my boss, I talked to my parents, I talked to some of my mentors. And so mind you, 
I'm doing this in November. And I'm like, okay, well, my birthday is the 21st. I decided on my birthday. Birthday came and went. I was like, I don't know. Uh, and then, you know, uh, Thanksgiving, you know, I'll decide by Thanksgiving. They, they was like, okay, I was like, I'm really, really going to decide by Christmas. Because <laughs> the deadline to file was the 10th, was January 10th, was, okay. was the final deadline. And then, like, I was like, okay, by New Year's, uh, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. If not, I'm not going to do it. And New Year's came. And, you know, uh, my fraternity's uh, founding day is January 9th. So it was Founders Day, Thursday morning, and I still hadn't like made up my mind. Um, I had a conversation with one of my friends on Tuesday, so that was the seventh. So everything's on Friday. That's like the deadline. And so like I have the application, but I'm like, uh, I don't know. And then I had saw my kids on Wednesday because our youth meetings are on Wednesday night. So uh, every Wednesday um, they alternate. So we have Max on Wednesday, and then we have you crew the other Wednesday. They alternate. So like Max is like. Social justice kind of free form. Students want to get involved and know about different topics going on in the community. Excuse me. Um, you crew is like specifically for like, you know, students who are interested in business. We give them opportunities to become entrepreneurs and do a social startup project. Um, but it's still kind of like social justice in itself. Um, so I'm pretty sure I had a max meeting. And I remember like telling them, like I tell them everything about my life and they followed me on social media. So they already kind of know. And so they're like, Daryl, what are you going to do about this venture council? I was like, I don't know. I'm like, uh. And so it's like Thursday and I'm like, okay, well, I got to get this turned in um, because I had to get like two witnesses and turn in everything and have all the paperwork in by like four o'clock. And like, I remember just sitting there and it was like, you know, I'm out here telling these kids, you know, you got to be bold. You got to be brave. Like you got to do stuff. You got to do stuff. And I'm like, well, damn it. I, I got to do some shit too. Cause like, I can't just tell them to do shit and then I don't do it. Right. I can't be like that kind of person. And so it was really with them in mind um, that I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to do it. And whatever happens, happens. But like I told them, like, you know, this is a love letter to y'all. Like this is me showing y'all like, hey, if you want to do something, you got to be brave and do it. And so I, I end up, you know, getting into the race January 10th. Um, and it was just like so weird. Like, I've never done anything like this. Um, you know, there were seven people originally in the race. Um, and I, I, I didn't know like, oh, wow, they actually had like a whole team. Like, I got to get a team. Like, oh, I just thought, <laughs> like, I really thought like, I had this like rosy. And it's so weird because, I, I, you know, my my major is history. And part of being a history major is you do a lot of political science. Right. So like, I know how like campaigns like in theory work. And I'm like, oh, you know, I've studied like politics and stuff like that. But I was like, oh, I have a lot of good ideas and people like me. So I should win. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you had to actually work at this. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you literally had to like go and like shake hands and kiss babies. Like that shit is real. Yeah. Um. And my socially awkward ass, you know, does not do well working a room. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one thing I, I I I hate it. Like I would be at these like big fundraiser events, and like my team would be like, "Daryl, you have to talk to every single person, and you can't leave until you talk to every single person." And I would get like so like anxious and worked oh, up. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Because that's not my personality. Like I I don't I don't know how to just be like, "Hey, how you doing?" Shake your hand. Yeah. Um, Dude, I get nervous about phone calls sometimes. Oh, phone banking is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> cold calling, like, random people. I hate cold calling. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like, to the people, like, if you worked on my campaign and you call somebody for me, thank you sincerely, because it is the worst experience. Like, I hate, like, I don't talk to my family on the phone often. <laughs> like, we have to have, like, real deep, like, personal relationships for me to call you and talk to you on the phone. Right. Um, like, I would rather, t- I actually don't mind FaceTime, but, like, just, like, to call somebody, like, we, we, we had to have some years in the game. 
Um, but for me, the best thing, because I'm an organizer, so I'm a community organizer, meaning like uh, I've canvassed neighborhoods and like went door to door and like talked to people and listened and said, hey, you know, do you realize that you have this resource in your community? Like, do you know how to use it? Do you, you know, is it working for you? If not, do you have some suggestions? Like, I know how to do that. So like the door to door part was actually my favorite part of like, you know, the process, like just to be able to like go door to door, talk to people, build relationships, um, like stuff like that was really, really cool. I hated like the I hated the 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 events, the big ticket events, the 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 banquets and stuff like that. Um, but really, just like those one on one opportunities just to go door to door, knocking doors because uh, it's, it's in my background. Um, but then all I had to stop because of COVID. Yeah. You know. Uh, when you're running for uh, Metro Council, you got to do the church circuit. You got to do the neighbor association circuit. You, so we had like this huge calendar. We had like fundraisers lined up. We were going to do something at Mile Wide. Shout out to Mile Wide, my favorite brewery. Oh, was yeah. There, was there last night. The magic number is amazing if you like Northeast IPAs like I do. Um, okay. Okay. So for the for the listeners, District 4, describe that area. Because, I, I mean, I, I literally looked at the district map like four mm-hmm. days ago because I was preparing for this. Uh-huh. So I know that I'm in District 12. Mm-hmm. But describe the, de- describe the district's floor like boundaries so people understand where that's at. So when we talk about District 4, we're going as far west as the Russell neighborhood, um, parts of California. So we're going about 26 in Broadway, as far west as we go in District 4 before we get to District 5. We're going as far east as Snitzelberg. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like Germantown and stuff. Yeah. I used to work when I was uh, a few summers ago, I worked at a uh, for the parks department and I worked at Douglas Community Center and we worked really, really close with the California Community Center. So there's some cool guys out there. Yeah. So District Four is extremely, you know, interesting because it has some of the most affluent zip codes in Louisville. You're talking about New you're talking about downtown, you're talking about Central Business District. But you're also talking about we have the single poorest um, zip code in the city and one of the poorest in the state. So all that's in District 4. Um, and so for a lot of people, it can be a tell of two cities because you hear downtown, you hear Nulu, you hear excitement. You know, Butchertown falls into District 4. So you have people excited about the soccer stadium being built. And then you have people facing extreme poverty. Right. Um, so for me, um, it was really wanted to make sure to give everybody a voice. So, you know, uh, one of our, you know, most, um, I guess, downtrodden uh, neighborhoods um, contains um, a property called Dosker Manor. I mean, a lot of people tell you they feel overlooked. They don't feel like they have a voice. They feel like nobody cares about them. They feel like that the landlord at that uh, apartment building does not care. Um, a lot of issues. So I have that. I have that uh, location in my district. And then I got I got the whis- I got Whiskey Row. I have, mm-hmm. you know, I have the loss on Whiskey Row. Right. Where you're paying about three grand a month to stay there. Is that because I looked at the district map and honestly, it looked ridiculous to me. Mm-hmm. Is a lot of that due to gerrymandering? Is that why you see a lot of like you, you'll see this district with ext- areas of extreme poverty and then also areas of extreme affluence? Um, so more so redlining. Okay. That's uh, even worse. Uh, so when we talk about redlining, uh, redlining is a practice um, done in, in cities where um, you, you, you cut off certain areas, you designate certain areas as bad districts um, and areas such as good districts. And we know um, when, you, when you designate somewhere as bad or good, that's where you drive dollars to. Right. Um, so when we talk about the West End of Louisville, um, where parts of District 4 runs into, like Russell, 
Uh, Russell is the biggest neighborhood um, in West Loop. It actually covers um, parts of District 4 and District 5 because it's so it's so vast as a neighborhood. Um, Russell used to be one of the, the most affluent neighborhoods in Louisville in the 60s. Um, but we talk about redlining. Um, the city intentionally um, diverted resources and funds from Russell. Um, for quick history, when the city does its um, its highway system in the 60s, it's specifically designed to divert people from downtown and to the suburbs, to your St. Matthews, to your Oklahoma's. Uh, so people will go out there and spend money not in downtown, which was mostly black at that time, but to your surrounding suburbs, which was mostly white. So if you're ever downtown, you're like really frustrated, like, damn, why are there so many one-way streets down here? It's super frustrating. It's because people were intentionally trying to get you not to go to those West End um, neighborhoods and to patronize them, but they wanted you to go to your St. Matthews, Oklahoma's, J-Towns, Middletowns. Um, places like that. Yeah. And another thing that had to do with redlining was it was all about like, could you get loans? Mm-hmm. If you lived in an area that was considered, uh, I guess, undesirable, you couldn't get loans. And so that was one way, you know, people talk a lot, especially right now about systemic racism. And, you know, I, I, I watch my social media page and, you know, I have some friends who are very conservative um, and, and I don't have, I don't knock them. I, I love them. I love those people. But um, just through my experience, you know, studying sociology and then working at a school where a lot of the young people that I was working with were coming from that California community, that that's right where my our students were coming from. And in fact, we would go out to the California Community Center and we would have parent teacher conferences out there because it was easier for parents to come there than it was to come to DOS. And uh, and you learn about things like redlining and, and you really understand that. And then you see like how, yes, you know. Our country has, for years, um, had a systemic attack on lower income areas and particularly black area, black communities. For and redlining is a perfect example of that, and, and a lot of people don't understand what that is. So I, I appreciate you coming on here and talking about that because it's it's a meaningful conversation that is more more relevant now than it has been. Well, I don't want to say more relevant, but but is extremely relevant and also at the forefront of people's attentions right now because of everything that's been going on in our nation. And you know, it's it's interesting. Um, I also tell you, running for metro council when you do like uh, boosted ads. Uh, on your Facebook profile. Oh, I've done that. You get a lot of people uh, who want to like talk on your on your ads, and it's like, wow, there's a lot of racism out here. Yeah. Um, and they'll say things like, oh, you just want handouts, and you just want, you know, you know, you just want, you know, these piece of crap Democrats. I'm like, one, you didn't even see Democrat in my. I mean, I, I ran as a Democrat. I'm running as a Democrat, but like my my page doesn't say anything that it's just like, hey. Daryl Young running for Metro D- District Four, but like the assumptions people make and like the weird shit people say on your on your post, uh, but it's this it's this idea that black and brown people just don't want to work hard or just don't want to try hard, and like that's the reason why they find themselves in the situation, and that is such a prevailing narrative is that no, these people, those people just don't try hard. That's the reason why they find themselves in the neighborhoods they do or the situation they find themselves in. But to your point and what we're talking about, we talk about things like redlining. We talk about what that actually means. You know, one, one, so I actually do anti-racism training. That's awesome. Are you familiar with Ibram? Oh gosh, I wish I could remember his Ibram name. Kendi? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I listened to him <clears throat> on Dak Shepard's podcast, Armchair Expert, recently, mm-hmm. and he talked a lot about anti-racism, and he wrote a book about it, and I haven't, I, I'm glad that you brought it up, because I was going to bring it up, 
Um, I really am interested in, in reading that book because if you haven't listened to Ibram Kendi's episode of Armchair Expert, you need to go listen to this because it will, I mean, he just speaks so much truth and so much rational fact that you just, once you hear it and you understand his point of view, like it really does inform and it, 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 it would go very far to inform an individual who really doesn't understand um, you know, just just how pervasive systemic racism is in our our culture as Americans. Um, but he also does it in a really non-confrontational, very, very um, digestible way to where a person wouldn't be offended or turned away by his message. You know, just, you know, just going to some really basic thing we talk about. What is what what are some things that redlining does? Right. You know, um, and I was saying, you know, I do anti-racism training through a group that I'm a part of called Racial Healers. And one thing we talk about is the GI Bill, because we understand it's really a, a strong base of the middle class was your baby boomers who served in World War Two, was able to use the GI Bill to get, uh, you know, a great home loan, who got educational benefits um, and were able to actually use utilize that to bring themselves out of poverty. Right. They're able to you know buy a home, which we understand helps you create, you know, wealth. You can pass down to somebody, do owning a home, pass it down to your children. Generational so wealth. Generational yeah. wealth because they don't have to have a home payment, right? So they can actually save money and save and have real savings and investment and send them to school for free wherever they want to go. So many, uh, you know, black, you know, servicemen and women were not allowed to utilize the that that GI Bill. So, yeah, I had a GI Bill. I'm supposed to be able to use it. But through the red line, it's like, no, we're not going to utilize the home loan for 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 black uh, servicemen to move to this neighborhood. We're going to divert them to. And it's actually in, you know, homeowners, guys and home sellers, guys and realtors, guys. Um, you know, when I live in Smoketown. Smoketown is the oldest historically black neighborhood in the state of Kentucky. Um, smoke tank is his name because they used to build smoke kilns. It actually used to be a Jewish neighborhood. Um, they built smoke kilns um, or chimneys uh, for houses, and then it became black. Um, it's one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city of Louisville. Um, my my rent is higher. Uh, not my rent. My car insurance is higher. Uh, my delivery service, if I don't use Amazon, um, if I don't use like I, I have Prime, if I was just like regular Amazon services, it's more in delivery services um, because of where I live. Just because of your zip code. Yep. Just because of where I live at. Yeah. That's ridiculous. And then, you know, when you take it even further back, like you were talking earlier about about how people like to ascribe these challenges that, um, I mean... I don't know. I would I would call it it's mostly a poverty issue in my mind, but it's definitely becomes a racial issue when you understand that there are a, there are a lot of people of color who are suffering from the scourge of poverty. And a lot of that has to do with that same exact systemic racism that we were talking about. People like to blame their situation on their character. But then when you start to read up on uh, just like even just like post-Civil War, like Jim Crow South, and you really understand how it was a tactic that was used by wealthy white landowners to poise or i guess to position um you know poor blacks as a problem so that poor whites would focus their hatred on poor blacks rather than both groups mm -hmm. obviously focusing their hatred on the actual problem which is these rich white landowners who did not want to give them um you know a fair share of the actual um i guess pie that they were all creating through their through their labor and you know that's one thing i tell people is like you know racism hurts white people too yeah not just not just black people it hurts white people too because like you said there are 
rich interests that would rather see, you know, these two subgroups fight instead of, you know, realize, wait a minute, we have a common enemy. Let's go attack them. It's like, nope, I need you to fight my battles for me. So I need you to hate black people. Right. And brown people. Because uh, they're the problem, not me. Exactly. And the real reason is because if those two groups were to actually focus their attention on the actual problem, they would outnumber that group by such a large amount. And that's something that really, really frustrates me as I'm not very vocal on my social media. And recently I've, I've kind of felt a little bit guilty about that because you'll hear things, you know, like silence is violence and, and that hurts me a little bit. I don't know. I don't know. I don't feel like my voice. I don't feel like my voice on social media has any impact. I'd much rather talk about it in a situation like this where I can really express myself fully and articulate my thoughts and my ideas. Um, I consider myself a progressive person and it's because of the experiences that I've had and the lessons that I've learned. Um, but there, it's, it's so often true when you get two people who have conflicting ideologies when all they have is 244 characters to express their thought, it's just not enough to really get a full picture. And so often you, I see these conflicts taking place on social media where people are arguing about these little things. And I'm like, do you guys realize the actual problem is that we have this whole system that has not changed in like 200 years? But just like you said, and Ibram Kendi says the exact same thing, racism hurts white people too. And so I, it it hurts my heart that there's so much divisiveness going on right now because in reality, we are all one. And that is something that I truly and genuinely believe deep in my core is that we are all the same and that if we could just find a way of loving one another and showing each other compassion and being and caring about each other as a community, that we would find that a lot of these problems are solvable if we go to the top and and you know i'm i'm torn um right because like you said it's it's really hard to mesh out these you know these deep-rooted issues with with only so many words you know whether you're on twitter or whether you're on facebook um well when i think about this idea of silence being violence um i also think about the times of you know are people really having these much needed conversations are people really you know are they saying Black Lives Matter in their boardrooms, in their places of worship, um, where, you know, it needs to be said? Um, because one of the things that, you know, I'm really curious about is, you know, it seems now that it's trendy to be in support of your black friends. Um, and because we see so many people um, coming out, making statements around Black Lives Matter and, you know, you know, using words like systemic racism and, you know, things that we haven't seen before. Um is that message going to where it needs to go? Because right now it's, it's, it's really safe to, to care about black people. It's, yeah. It is, it is, there's no safer time that I can recall to be able to say black lives matter, mm -hmm. um, which is great that you're making that public display. But like, are you, are you talking about to your HR who still only, you know, hires, you know, maybe 5%, you know, you know, minorities in your, in your job or, you know, is there an actual, uh, you know, designated person who's looking at the climate of your job to make sure it's welcoming, um, that's what you know. That's one of the things I was frustrated about the, the diversity and inclusion field is that you know, 
is more so a numbers game and actually instead of a, a structural change game, right? So mm-hmm. we're going to hire, you know, a woman. We're going to hire a gay person. We're going to hire a black dude. But the climate and the culture is still the exact same, you know, uh, centered in white, straight maleness mm-hmm. um, that it's not inviting and it's not safe for those identities to be there. But we got them on the payroll. So we've done our job. It's like, no, like, are we really ready to do the, the real structural change? Um um, that needs to happen. So for me, what I'm seeing and I'm looking at is like, you know, where are we going to go from here? Like, I'm I'm loving some of the policy changes I'm hearing about people talking about and, you know, love seeing the support. But is it sustainable? Right. Um, because we know right now people are cooped up in the house. They ain't got nothing else to do. Uh, for a lot of people, I wonder, like, we are just bored in the house. I was like, hey, I couldn't go to my favorite store, but I can go protest. At least I'm outside and, you know, doing something. Um, you know, I've been out, you know, um, here in Louisville, we're talking about Breonna Taylor. Um, I've been able to join protesters, you know, out here um, and, and be with them and be in space and be in community. Um, and I see a, it's, it's the it's the most diverse field I've seen in years. You know, I've been doing this for at least six or seven years in terms of, you know, you know, community organizing, protesting. Um, and it's 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 real. It's real rainbow right now, Mitch. <laughs> um, and, I, and, you know, you love to see that energy and, and hopefully these inroads are being made. But I just really hope. That, you know, for me, my fear is that most people only understand racism as either somebody in the hood, um, when I talk about the hood, like a Klansman hood, or like these these words, right? Um, like, if, if, as long as I don't say the N-word, I'm not racist. Or as long as I don't, you know, you know have a white cross in my yard and, and burn it in somebody else's yard, I'm not racist. Um, and, and really, there are a lot of well-meaning, well-intentioned, good-natured racists. Yeah. So I want to give you, because I haven't read his book yet, but I plan to. I've actually got it downloaded on Audible. I'm excited about it. Um, I'm going to give you my understanding um, of what Ibram Kendi describes as anti-racism. And then I would like to hear you talk about that because I feel like you probably would have a more informed opinion about that. So what he basically says is he says that people can be bigoted and they can have, they can have, they can believe certain connotations towards certain individuals based on things like skin color. Um, but that's not really racism. That's just kind of ignorance or that's, that's, that's bigotry. What really constitute racism constitutes racism are these systems that hold people of color back and do not give them the same opportunity that an individual with similar experiences um, who had grown up in a different zip code um, with a different skin color might actually have. Um, and he says, you can, you, you can choose, you can be a person who loves people of, uh, with black or brown skin. You can love another person, but you can contribute to systems that hold those individuals back. And by doing that, you're contributing to racism. Mm -hmm. And then you can simultaneously try to contribute to systems that are going to give those individuals the same opportunities as everybody else and no longer have those those roadblocks in their way. And that is anti-racism. And you can do something racist and then something anti-racist in the exact same day. And the real goal that all people should have is to try to have a positive 
impact in the direction of anti-racism. You cannot, and one thing you have to do is you have to own your own biases. So, I mean, that's something that I've struggled with is realizing that, that there have been times in my life where I've said racist things, where I've thought racist thoughts. And now as an adult, I look back and I think those were the ignorant thoughts of a child. Um, but I still have patterns of behavior built into myself that that my knee-jerk reaction is one of ignorance. Mm-hmm. And then I have to really think, no, I've learned that that is, that is foolishness. And I really, the appropriate way to behave now is like this. Mm-hmm. And once you realize that, you understand that it's not okay. I don't want to say it's okay to behave in a way that is racist. But you have to understand that sometimes you will, and your goal should be to be cognizant of those times that you are, and aware that that's happened, and to try to do, to engage in that type of behavior less often, and try to engage in the type of behavior that is going to lift up the black and brown people around you whom you love more often. Mm-hmm. And is and and that was kind of the message that I got from from listening to that podcast. So for me, again, it's making sure one that we understand when we talk about racism, we have a really um evolved understanding of what that term means. Because again, I would dare to say a lot of people um have the connotation that, oh, I don't say the N-word. Um, I don't hang out with Klansmen. Um, so I, therefore, ergo, I'm not a racist, um, because we delineate racism to only just this, this set of words that you're not supposed to say and these clothes you're not supposed to wear. And so that is our understanding of what racism is. So we have a very small understanding of what racism looks like. When we talk about systemic racism, we're talking about people experience these systems. When we talk about systems, we're talking about every sector of your possible life is affected by racism. Uh, a lot of people say, why do, why, why do people make things about race all the time? Because race literally affects you in every single aspect of your life. I can I can literally say that racism affects my home, my home ownership situation. We just talked, talked about where I live determines, you know, the prices I pay for certain services. What, you know, and you as a white person, depending on where you live at, you're probably experiencing, you know, um, less taxes on where you live at. But because of this, you know, where I happen to live at, um, where I've been kind of pushed into by my society. Is, is causing me to experience these these hardships that I shouldn't have to. Um, we talk about um, job. You and I are both educators. Um, now, you have a master's degree, but even if, you know, we talked about just you and I, I don't have a master's I just have a bachelor's degree. Um, but on average, um, you as a white male um, will make 30% more than I do, it, even at the same job with the same qualifications on average. So just you might not, but on average, people who look right, like right. you are going to make more right, than I understand I do. that, so, yeah. Yeah, so so when people say that that term or use that analogy, well, why do we have to talk about race about everything? Because it literally affects you know every single aspect of your life. Uh, and we talk about you know uh, to Candy's point, anybody can be prejudiced, right? Anybody can have ill will or bigoted ideas about any group. Um, <clears throat> but what that goes into is start people start talking about, oh, well, black people can be racist too, and this reverse racism, and like there's no such thing because racism, in its true definition, is prejudice plus power, like having the actual power um, uh, to actually oppress an entire group, right? To actually create laws that that 
you know, advantage the entire group, not just a, a segment of the group. Because some people say, well, what about a black owned country club? They can exclude white people. Like, no, that is, that is a subset. That is not a majority of people. But having the, the power and the position to actually subjugate or oppress the vast majority of a set people just because of their color of their skin, that is that's that's real power. You hear a lot of people say, well, you can't there's no more racism because we elected a black president. And I remember um, doing our anti-racism training, our our lead trainer, that would be the stump question, right? That's how he kind of like trained us. It's like, how do you answer the question uh, if somebody were to ask you, how is it racism? We were we elected Barack Obama and we were all like, I don't know how to say that in a, in a concise, concinct way. And, you know, he did it in like 30 seconds. Like, you know, you know, even Barack Obama, the president of the United States, the most powerful position, not only in the country, but almost the world, um, arguably, arguably the world. Even he himself could not shift the systemic issues that black people face. Right. He could not, you know, you know, with a snap of his finger, um, uh, uh, make the wealth gap between black America and white America disappear. Right. Um, he couldn't make um, police stop pulling over uh, black men at a, at a, at a, at a, and make it an equal rate to what white men get pulled over. Right. So all these paradigms and these narratives that we hear, whether we believe them or not, even the most powerful person in the country, if not the world, uh, could not make those things go away. We still saw, um, you know, Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice um, and all the names that we've had to hashtag over the years, um, even during that presidency still happened. Right. Um, so when we talk about an anti-racist framework for me is I don't think you can be anti-racist and be passive. Right. Um, you have got to find a way um, to attack that system, um, whichever way you see fit. Um, when I work with my kids, um, we talk about the four roles of social change. Um, and these kind of four archetypal roles that people can kind of take to affect change for themselves. So you have some people who are your 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 activists or your or your protesters who are going to be in the streets who want to do direct action, um, who want to, dis, uh, you know, do social disturbance. Um, that's their way that they fit in. Um, yeah. You have people who want to organize who for them. I want to be the organizer. I want to bring people together. I want to pool resources. I want to figure out how do we come together um, to create change. You have advocates who want to take the problems of the downtrodden and present them at larger tables to to make sure that those boys are being heard. Or you have your volunteers like, you know what? I can go out there and deliver some some water to protesters because they've been they've been out there for for you know six hours in the sun. You know, I can go out here and help sign people up to get registered to vote. So I think to be anti-racist, you have to actively engage in some way. And you don't have to do all of them, but you got to do something um, to really dismantle the system if you're if you if you really want to make a difference. Uh, right now is a really interesting time because we have both this combination of of this what I would argue justifiable outrage mm-hmm. over these obvious injustices that are taking place. And furthermore, we have COVID and all of these these the struggles that have come from lockdown and you know I, I see gosh how do I want to say this let me think as a white man while I don't take ownership of all of the things that that happened before I existed I have to take ownership of how I engage now. And I have to see 
that these things are realities. And I do. I, I've been lucky enough to 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 have an education. My, my, my degree is in sociology. It's something that I'm passionate about. Understanding how people interact with each other is important to me. I've worked in communities that were underserved and disadvantaged, and I, I've seen it firsthand. I've never experienced it fully. I've been so lucky to have the experiences that I've had. But I understand why some people would scoff at the idea of something like white privilege, especially poor white people. Why they would scoff at this white privilege. I've worked for everything that I've had. They don't understand the realities of our system. They don't understand the Jim Crow South. They don't understand things like redlining. And so when we talk, and, and I just want to make sure, you know, hop on that while you said it. When, when, when people say white privilege, that does not mean that white people haven't struggled, that they have not had significant hardship. When the idea of white privilege is, is that even even when you've had to struggle, you've still been at a more advantageous, advantageous um, point than a black person in your in your yeah. in your. You didn't have to struggle and also be black. Right. And, you know, because we're not we're not saying that, you know, every single white person has had a silver spoon in their mouth and had the, the best life experiences. I, I know there are, you know, and I'm you know, working class kid myself, I know that white people have been way poorer than I have. You yeah. Know? Um, but still, I, you know, I think of a, I think of a, a, a joke that Chris Rock said, you know, he's like, you know, there is somebody in the audience right now. He is a white kid, 18 in a wheelchair, paralyzed, and he still wouldn't trade places with me. <laughs> he's like, and I'm rich. God damn it. He said, he's like, no, I'm gonna ride this white shit out. Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and I think about the joke that, he, you know, he, so it was actually two different stand-ups he did, but he was talking about another stand-up. He was like, you know, in his neighborhood, it's him, Mary J. Blige, Jay-Z. So, like, Chris Rock, you know, and he, he was being humble. He said, you know, you know, fairly, pretty, pretty, you know, famous comedian, pretty funny, funny guy. Mary J. Blige, one of the biggest, you know, R&B artists of all time. Jay-Z, one of the biggest rappers of all time. They're the only three black people in the neighborhood. The guy who lives next to them? White dentist, <laughs> not the best yeah. dentist, not 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 like not like in the Hall of Fame of dentists, not you know the dentist that you know found you know the uh, you know the the extra you know molar nerve and it had it named after him in the in the in the dentist books. It's just a dentist, just a regular dentist, yeah. Mm. And another thing that I think people don't understand about this whole concept of white privilege is when people are asking for equality, there's a lot of, I think there's this feeling that like that that white people are gonna have to give up their privilege. And that's not the message. The message is you have had this advantage that you have not had to deal with these injustices that this other population of people have had to deal with. Let's make it to where they don't have to deal with it either. And so it's not good up your privilege, but it is good up your comfort, right? And for a lot of people, that even that is absurd. Like, you know, I know I want to I don't want to focus on that. That's not my lane. That's not my job. It's going to go away or it's going to do whatever it's going to do, but I don't want that here with me. Um, you know, I struggle a lot of times when people talk about peaceful protests, right? We try to justify protests. And, you know, uh, as somebody who has protested, you know, one of the most popular refrains in the protest movement is no justice, no peace. Um, but people will try to say, oh, we, 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 we listen to peaceful protests. But like, would you really would you really listen to me if I didn't inconvenience you? If I, you know, allowed you to feel comfortable right now? And so a lot of times, one of the reasons these conversations are so hard 
is because black people have to understand that we have to make sure oftentimes that white people are comfortable in the conversation. Because we know if we really had this conversation like we need to have it, you're going to be uncomfortable and then you're going to tune us out. So even that is can be a chore because it's like, okay, when you, when you talk about the need to have these kind of conversations, oftentimes it's so hard because we have to place that person's comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes this is and this happens in all you know dyna- you know power dynamic issues. When we talk about you know uh, women having to talk to men about these issues and educating them on their misogyny. We have to talk about you know the LGBTQI plus community talking to straight people about their you know homophobia. Right? It's oftentimes the empowered group has to feel comforted to even enter the conversation. Right? Because I don't want to be attacked. Because I I'm a good person. I don't do these things. I'm a nice guy. And we had to center that, and it's like, well, damn! If I if I had to do that, we can have a really progressive conversation and go into some real shit. But I gotta make sure you still feel comfortable. I want to encourage you to not consider my comfort as a as a, a, a roadblock to having a meaningful conversation. Oh right no, now. no, good. Because I want as we talked about earlier about how like I see on social media all these people who are fighting who should be friends. They should be friends with each other. And then what they should do is they should take that friendship, that closeness, and they should use that trust to have those hard conversations because those hard conversations are necessary. Um, but you just don't see that happening because there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between like typing something into a screen and, and talking to someone who's sitting across from you. And then most people want to feel like they won those things, right? Like this is a battle. This is an ideological war of the words. Mm-hmm. So I want to feel like I won and I and I got you. Right? Yeah. So a lot of times people are are entering those those situations in a space of understanding it's it's a it's a gamemanship or 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 one upsmanship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely see that. You want to you want to have the and that also I mean that that falls into like media and the way that social or the way that social media has kind of like advanced this whole idea of like sound bites mm-hmm. the whole sound bite thing where you just like take the smallest little thing out of context and try to just use it to destroy someone else's integrity when the reality is is that we are all imperfect people who are struggling every day to get things right and who are failing at it more often than we are succeeding and that's got to be okay that's got to be okay and and we can't we can't allow animosity to build up in our hearts when somebody says something foolish. We have to love that person enough and respect that person enough to try to come at them from the perspective of you could you you could grow. You could grow in your understanding and I could grow in my understanding by having this hard conversation. And so I, I definitely agree with you on that. And I definitely believe that. I do think, though, the one pushback I'm going to push back on that a little bit, though, is that I think when you see the frustration from from black folks and from people of color is that. These these situations for us are not academic or not rhetorical, right? Like we're when we talk about police brutality, like we're literally getting killed by police or like we talk about redlining. We're literally getting subjugated into communities with, who lack funds and resources. So I think the frustration is not that we don't want to show grace. It's that for us, it's not just a rhetorical situation that when it's over, like, oh, I can, you know, my reality is different. Right. So for somebody who's coming at it from a perspective of, oh, I believe this is like, you know, you can believe that. But for me, it's not, I don't just believe it. It's, it's happened to me. I'm experiencing right. it. Right? And you're living it. And that means a lot to me as you say that, because 
for me, it definitely is is more of an intellectual pursuit. Like I don't experience racism on a day to day basis, and and I definitely am not disadvantaged about by it. I couldn't be disadvantaged by it, and so like having these conversations is mostly intellectual for me. I'm trying to understand more, and that in itself is a privilege that I have that you don't have. So. I, I appreciate you you bringing that to my attention because that's important for people like myself to understand. You know, I was um, in a conversation with the mayor um, and I was I was there because I'm you know, he had a conversation, a, a kind of a private conversation um, with the Divine Nine. And that's your, uh, you know, my fraternities, you know, our collective historically black fraternities and sororities are called the Divine Nine. And he had a president's meeting with the leadership. And, you know. Um, I told him, I was like, you know, Mr. Mayor, I've known you for a number of years with your initiatives, but, you know, tonight I'm not here as the president of Epsilon Beta Sigma. I'm here, you know, as one of your constituents that was tear gassed, you know, fighting to get the officers that you employ arrested because they shot a woman in her house um, off of a legal and poorly executed search warrant. Um, so it's like, I'm not just here to have a, a intellectual debate with you. Like, I was literally tear gassed by your officers. Um, and that happened to me Friday night um, mm-hmm. during one of the protests. It was a peaceful protest. And again, that idea of peaceful, but, you know, there was, you know, I know the narrative right now is there's looters infiltrating these movements and just want to destroy property. Um, but when I was there, um, I can I can literally tell you from the four hours I was there from five o'clock to nine forty five, um, there was no property destruction. There was no looting. Um, but because um, an officer felt threatened um, because of somebody bringing a stereo up to uh the front lines um, blasting fuck the police by NWA, um, which I even told him, like, that's not a good idea, man. You need to fall back. Um, mm-hmm. Don't just agitate to agitate, you know, agitate for a reason. Uh, but yeah. And then we got tear gas. Yeah. And, you know, but the hard thing is, is, you know, looting is happening. And, you know, I, I fully understand that it is just it's individuals who are taking advantage of a challenging situation where they feel like they can and a lot of the looting that's happening is like our organized crime uh groups who are just taking advantage of an opportunity to uh where they feel like they can get away with this type of behavior and that's unfortunate because it it distracts from a more important message and and I hate that that's happening but it always happens. You see it with with every type of movement like this when you have a dem- when you have people who are actively demonstrating to try to to change policy that could improve the lives of individuals. You also see looting. It happens. And you know, you know and and it's it's hard for me to be sympathetic to the looting issue because, you know, I think we can both say, you know, we 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 live in Louisville, Kentucky. We 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 are in the we are in the heart of the of one of the greatest sports rivalries of of all time, U of L versus UK. We've seen outside of Rep Arena when UK loses and we see people well when they win, even when they win. Yeah. And people burden, you know, burning mattresses and couches and, and and you know, you you'll see, you know, like, you know, ESPN like laughing, like, oh, look at these crazy people having so much fun. They really love their sports rivalry. So on that one hand, we can um we can applaud or laugh and chuckle with that kind of behavior. Um, but when we see people having, you know, what I call righteous indignation, um, we're more concerned about property, which ultimately is insured and can be replaced. Right. That's why we had insurance policies. And we, we, we allowed that to become the, the greater narrative than the fact that not only have we lost another life, but we've seen this become a trend. Right. So it's not so Breonna Taylor was not the first, you know, black person, you know, um, 
murdered at the hands of police, right? So, you know, George Floyd was not the first person, um, you know, murdered um, by police. Um, Ahmaud Arbery was not the first person um, taken because somebody saw themselves as a vigilante who could take themselves, uh, the law into their own hands, right? It'd be one thing if these were the first people, right? It's like, oh, wow. Well, that's never happened before. So, you know, I can under- I don't see why people are burning down things. But I think what you're seeing is people have been told if you pray about it, if you remain calm, if you act accordingly, you know, things will get better. If you vote for this politician, they're going to be able to bring the change you want to see. Um, if you turn a cheek just one more time, um, you will, you know, gain the compassion of your of your enemy. And so all those things that. um can appear passive that have, I think a lot of these communities have tried. We, we, we've done them right. And then it's not, it's, it's not bringing about the change that we've been promised. Those actions would, would bring about. Um, and so again, I, I do think most people who are protesting are not the ones committing those crimes, but even if they were, I can't, I can't scold them if that's where their outrage has not even, even if that's not the method that I would take, I'm not going to scold them if that's the method that they took. If that makes sense to you. I understand that. You know, the last thing that I'm going to do is try to justify the behavior of people who are destroying businesses or, or, or you know, um, in an vandalizing storefronts or stealing property. Um, I think that's wrong. I think behaving in that way hurts other people, and we should all do our best to try to avoid any action that's going to hurt other people. But I do understand the point of view of an individual who, I, I wish I could remember who, who described it to me as this way, who's grown up in an environment where they've been disenfranchised. Their parents were disenfranchised. Their grandparents were disenfranchised. And they look at their children and they see that they don't have any opportunities to escape this exact same system who is, that is going to hold them back and oppress them how that could erupt in that type of behavior. I understand it. You know, I think, you know, I'm I'm reminded of two different, you know, um, explanations of of just where, you know, we see people at and and where their their mindset is at. I remember taking a a course um, at UofL um, as part of my history requirement with uh, Dr. Bruce Tyler. Um, And I I had to read a book um, and it was called From Zoot Suits to Uniforms. And it was really about just the um, African-American presence in the military and how for many people, um, for many black Americans, they saw um, s- serving in the military um, as the ultimate sign of patriotism. And it was their belief that if we show our commitment to our country by serving our country and w- putting our lives on the line, literally for our country, we have to be accepted as heroes when we get back. So that has to help the civil rights movement by, you know, being servicemen and being service women and then coming home and still again not being able we talked about earlier not being able to utilize a GI bill um like their white counterparts still you know coming back home and getting you know lynched and brutalized and um still facing the same second class citizenry um as their white peers um and so i think you've seen you know black folks try these very peaceful methods um, and are still trying them, right? It's not like, and and let's be clear, I, there's not a there's not a, a mainstream black contingent call, calling for armed um, anarchy and revolution. I also remember an interview that uh, Tupac did. Um, 
It's also funny that I'm more of a Biggie fan than a Tupac fan. But I, I've always remembered <laughs> that hurts my heart a little bit. <laughs> I, I, th- I, I think I think I think Pac is a very limited rapper, but he's a much better like philosopher, mm-hmm. right? Like a real okay. life philosopher. But like music wise, I'm not going to listen to a lot of Pac. I'm not. It's not really. No, nah, I mean I, I've got like maybe ten like. 10 Pac songs I really, really like and I mess with. But okay. like, I'm, I'm probably not going to listen to a whole Tupac album like front to, like front to back. Okay. But I, I'll never forget an interview he did um, for MTV and this was like in like the early 90s and he was talking about just the, the idea of militancy and he was, and his, his analogy was to be a hungry, you know, child who has lived this impoverished lifestyle who passes by um, a hotel in a hotel with uh, a glass front so you can see inside and inside there is this huge buffet where they're just the tables can't even hold the food like their steaks and shrimp and lobster just falling off the 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 table is so abundant right and so as a kid he's like okay I want to come in and he tries to go in and he can't get in the door is locked He's like, okay, well, I can't get in, so now I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be a cute kid. I'm like, hey, I want to come in, I want to come in, let me in. And then he's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm, you know, entertaining. I can make a song like, hey, let me in, cute little kid wants to eat, yeah, 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 yeah. And he said, after a while, if I'm still not let in, first it's okay. Well, now the song is gonna get a little beat to it. It's like, uh, let me in, uh, 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 let me in. And then I might, you know, if you start letting me in, then it's okay. Now I'm putting the rhyme to it, and. Now it's let me in. I got to eat. I'm in the street. Da, 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 da. And after a while, if you still don't hear me now, if you if you didn't like me when I was polite, you didn't like me when I was cute, you didn't like me when I was entertaining. Now it's let me in. I'm holding the gun, ready to bust, ready to shoot one, ready to shoot you if you don't let me in. So it's just this idea of if we weren't listening to why we were polite, what's the point? Um, and that's what you're seeing. A lot of people just felt like, you know, we've told it's going to come through the vote. We've been told it's going to come through um through our faith we've been told you know if we kneel if we if we are if we are polite if we if we don't raise our voices if we stay calm it'll come change will come um but we're st- we're seeing people you know we, we we're still in a point now where we're still now just starting to say well maybe Colin Kaepernick wasn't bad for taking a knee right um and we're still tripping. We're still seeing athletes triple on themselves. Like, I, well, I still wouldn't take a knee because um, my grandfather's hurt in the military. Well, hey, my black grandfather's hurt in the military. So, you know, what's, you know. Uh, do you think a lot of it ultimately comes down to tribalism? People who just struggle to see past this in-group, out-group mentality. And they just can't, for some reason... Re- see that all people are the same. You know, like, when Colin Kaepernick was kneeling, I heard a lot of people say, like, this is anti-patriotic. This guy's not patriotic. And that's not what I saw. I saw a patriot. Mm -hmm. I saw a man who was taking his platform and using it to point out injustice. But a lot of people couldn't see past, like, he's he's disrespecting this national anthem. I am a human before I'm an American. And other humans are humans to me before they are black, before they are white, before they are Americans. That's how I, that's how I try, if I, even if I'm not always successful, that's how I try to view other individuals. But I understand that we are basically just 
evolved primates mm-hmm. who who now are living in this global society, but for the majority of our existence as a species lived in tiny little groups of 150. And if you weren't a member of my group, you were probably trying to kill my group or take something from my group. And that is no longer a reality, but for some reason, most people just can't see past this in-group, out-group mentality. If you're not a patriot, if you're not behaving in this way that I feel like an American should behave, well, then you must be anti-American. If you're not, uh, if you're engaging in this, like, this, I guess, this, um, this behavior that I, that I see as being um, criminal, then you're obviously not a part of my group, so you must be other, so you must be feared, and you must be persecuted. Do you think it, it really it boils down to this just this this misunderstandings that 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 some human beings just don't have the capacity to see each other as the same? So the 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 optimist in me believes that we have that ability, mm-hmm. um, but what I think complicates that narrative is I think there's always been a group that wants to dominate another group and so to get another group. I think about my um, one of my, my mentors, Dr. Ricky Jones, um, and in all his classes he talked about, you know, um, he always reminded us of Antonio Gramsci. Um, Gramsci was a Sardonian. And Dr. Jones, if you, if you find yourself listening to this, I've been drinking bourbon and tequila <laughs> earlier because I went to El Nepal before I got here. So. Did you get a margarita? I did. Hell yeah. You, you can't. That's the, that's the whole point of going to El Nepal. I love a margarita more than any other mixed drink in the history of the world. I love margarita. I didn't like tequila until like a couple of years ago, but now like tequila is in the mix. Okay. Um, but you know, he would always talk, he would always bring up Gramsci because Gramsci um, was part of the Italian um, underclass, but he was a, a, a brilliant uh, theorist and scientist. Um, and he would talk about how um, his small Island, um, he was Sardonian. And they would be they would be subjugated by Italy, and Italy was constantly dominating them and trying to, um, you know, overpower them. And so I think I think for white people, not only are you asking them to have this human response, and you talk about love and understanding, and compassion, you're asking them to give up a lot, right? Because you're asking them to really, you know, undermine a society that was was set with with them in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and to really, you know, give up that centeredness, right? Because everything is centered for you. Um, I, I can remember, you know, in my history class, if you think about just, you know, these just, just little things, right? You know, because, you know, we can debate heavy things, but just some of the, like the really simple things like, you know, um, you know, if we look at art, right? If we talk about any other culture, you have African art, you have Asian art, you have, you know, um, South American art, uh, Latinx art. But if you talk about fine art, you know I'm probably talking about European art, right? So just how we even conceptualize the world and how we center it, um, it's very Eurocentric, very European. Um, white folks in this country have the um, privilege, again, we talk about privilege and all the things that white privilege means, um, have the privilege of having their existence, their worldview being centered as the legitimate soul number one opinion so you're not only asking somebody to have a human reaction a human emotion you're asking them to really open up their worldview and say hey let somebody else in um you know i'm an only child 
Um, so I don't, I didn't have to share my toys, but, you know, you know, talking to my cousins who had, you know, you know, brothers and sisters and talking to my friends at brothers and sisters, the biggest fight was having to share. I don't want to share my toys. I want to share my things. This is mine. And I think you're seeing that right now. And and when we talk about a, a human brotherhood is I need you to share your toys right now. I need you to actually understand like, Hey, this is my experience. And you're asking people to do that. And they've never had to do that before. Yeah. You know, we could talk about this for hours mm-hmm. um but you actually brought up a great segue that i think we can use to kind of like head towards the end of this thing and you talked about art you in my mind are an artist and you cook mm. and that is your that's your way of expressing yourself tell me about that when did that start for you because because i've watched you post these these del- i i we sarah and i we pay for um, HelloFresh. Mm-hmm. So I get this kind of like false feeling of being able to cook. Mm-hmm. I, what I, I'm actually doing is I'm following instructions, which mm-hmm. I'm very good at doing. Mm-hmm. But you cook. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. How did that, when did that start for you? And what was that, where did that come from? I was hoping we get to the cooking part. I was yeah. wondering if we were able to fit that into the episode um, because it's, it's. It was a stretch. Let's be honest. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I just, hey, Daryl, how do you make that Italian sauce? <laughs> uh, but, but no. So um, I cook. So cooking really is, you know, I, I, you know, to be perfectly honest, because you, you talked about this a little bit during the show. We talk about depression and things of like that. So I also suffer from depression and anxiety. Um, to the point where I take medication. Um, and uh, one of the hard things about, you know, COVID was, um, you know, I had a prescription that really wasn't working for me. So I wasn't taking my, my medication regularly. Uh, but because we couldn't, you know, they were discouraging people to go, you know, into, you know, doctor's offices because of the spread. Um, I really couldn't go see my doctor and say, hey, can we kind of like up this and take this down? So I wasn't taking my medication for months. Um, so trying to run a campaign, um, trying to, uh, you know, manage all my other ops, you know, things I was supposed to do, um, and, you know, deal with, you know, a depressive ass, you know, <laughs> shutdown was, was really, really, really tough for me. Um, so I'm, I'm glad now I can try to address that. But, um, so for me cooking, um, my dad was really into cooking. Like I remember like my dad and myself, my dad has a complicated thing with sports. Uh, my dad's father was not around. He was an alcoholic. Um, I think my dad used sports to try to get his love and attention. Um, but I don't think he actually likes sports. Cause like, even now I see my dad watch like games and stuff, but like, he's not like super into it. Like I am. So like we would watch like, you know, you know, football and basketball. But I remember sitting down with my dad more and watching iron chef. I love that show. I love Iron Chef. I love, have you watched the Great British Baking Show? See, I don't like baking because I'm not a sweets person. Really? So baking, like, like I love chop. I don't like the dessert round because I don't, I don't like sweets that much. I like it because it's British, if mm. I'm being perfectly <laughs> honest. Just the accents. I like the just, way they just, talk. Just the charming accents. They're just really nice to each other the whole time. <laughs> but no, yeah. Uh, but so, yeah. So, like, um, I would watch Chop with my not Chop uh, Iron Chef with my dad. Um, like the re- like the real OG Iron Chef, like uh, all like you know subtext and subtitles and stuff. Heck yeah! Uh, my mom got into a very serious accident at work uh, when I was in the fourth grade. Um, she worked at Ann Taylor Distribution Center out here on Greenbelt, um, and she got her arm stuck in the conveyor belt, so she got really really messed up. 
Um, my dad worked second shift. Um, so I had to, I had to cook because if I didn't cook, my mom's on bed rest for six months. My dad doesn't get home till seven thirty, eight o'clock. So if he had to come home and cook, we wouldn't eat till midnight. Mm-hmm. Um, so my mom would teach me how to make like spaghetti and so like some really basic things that we can eat. Um, and I didn't like it. I, I hate it. Cause I was like, I'm a kid. I want to go outside and play. Like <laughs> why do I gotta be inside cooking meals and shit? Um, when I got older, um, got to college, it was a way to impress women because I'm a broke college kid. But hey, hey, girl, baby, I can cook for you. Let me cook and get in the kitchen. And I was doing like really, again, basic kind of food. I knew how to fry some stuff. I knew how to, you know, put a roast in the oven um, and stuff like that. Ended up dating a girl um, towards my last year of undergrad. Um, she was in grad school. Right. Um, and again, I'm broke. I don't have no money. I can't afford to take her to a lot of restaurants. It's really sad, too, because I went from broke undergrad to being a AmeriCorps Vista, so really not having any money. <laughs> so I was, I really was like Susie Homemaker. I was in her apartment because I was, you know, I moved from the province because it took me a fifth year um, at U of L. So I lost all my scholarship money because I didn't graduate in four years. So I had to move back home with my parents. So I was staying at her place all the time. And so like I was like mopping the floor while she was at work or doing her practicum. And then, like, I would have dinner ready when she came back. And so that was my thing. Um, when we ended up breaking up after three and a half years, I was extremely depressed. Um, my vice is alcohol. Um, and so I would just drink heavily um, when we broke up. Um, you know, I was like, that was like, no, I thought me and her were going to get married. Um, and so I was drinking really heavily. And I was like, this has to stop. I can't, you know, I have a history of alcoholics in my family. I don't want to become an alcoholic. Um, but I know like my, when I'm sad, I want to drink um, beer and bourbon until I can't drink anymore. So. I was like, what do I like to do? Like, what do I think I'm good at? Um, I was like, well, I do this whole little cooking thing. And um, I'll never forget, I went to work one day and my friend Emma was just like busting my balls. I was, I was like, yeah, I made this from scratch. And da, da, da. she's like, damn, you didn't make it from scratch. And I was like, damn, Emma, don't tell my whole business and stuff. <laughs> I was like, you're right. I was like, you know, it's a bunch of canned food and stuff. And like, I, you know, I'm, it's not from scratch. And so I remember like one day I was like, you know what? I'm going to try to make this from scratch because I, I was buying like some um, like some jarred like Indian like curry from Kroger. And so I was like, wait a minute. Like, I wonder, can I make this? Like, I wonder, can I actually like taste these ingredients, look at the ingredients level and take all like the weird like bicarbonate, sorting and whatever bullshit they put in food. And but like, OK, tomato, this is tomatoes. This is curry powder, this and that and that. I can buy that myself and just put it all together. I will admit that I have also been guilty of claiming to have made something from scratch. And what I actually meant was I combined the contents of three cans exactly. and warmed them up. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, and that was like, you know, for me, like cooking became like a project. And, you know, I, I remember one time I tried to, I think, I think I tried to make etouffee and it took me like five hours because I didn't know what I was doing. And like, I think one time I didn't turn the uh, the the, uh, the stove on, so like, I was just like, "Why isn't this boiling? Like, why is it still still cold?" I was like, "Oh, dumbass! You didn't you didn't flip the, you didn't flip the switch on, so it's not it hasn't been cooking at all for the last forty five minutes." And like, but that was like my first thing, and I was like, "Okay, well, now I know I did that wrong." And then, um, actually, women have a huge impact on my cooking. A lot of like a lot of relationships and like just like interaction with women. So like my mom's injury, you know, my my breakup with my girlfriend, uh, my friend calling me out by not really cooking, cooking for real. Um, and then uh, to your point, we talk about blue, like Hello Fresh and Blue Grape, and I was dating a girl, and for Christmas she bought me 
a subscription to uh, Blue Apron. And so I was like, I'm cooking stuff I've never cooked before. I've heard spices I've never heard before. And I was like, I wonder if I can actually like do this myself. Yeah, like you're making sauces and stuff like that. You like, you are cooking from scratch. It's just you have instructions that show you how to do it. Yeah, so I was like, I wonder, can I just like do this without the instructions? And that was like my safe space was like to, to be in the kitchen. Like, um, and it, you know, instead of, you know, again, I know my vice, if I'm upset and sad, I'm probably going to go to the bottle. Um, but instead of doing that, I was like, no, if I have, a, if I've had a hard day, if I have enough time, like I'll go to the kitchen. It's like, what is the most complex thing I can make to take my mind off of a really bad day? And it's been that for like the past probably about four years now. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of the amazing things that you've posted on Facebook. And the reality is, is that your Facebook is an inspiration. You should be proud of it. Like when I look at your Facebook, it exudes positivity and not a lot of people can say that about their social media presence. And one thing I had a conversation with David Vandelberg one time, you know, a lot of people choose to be fake on social media and they'll, you know, you can curate that experience. And what he eventually, what he what he told me and the conclusion we basically came to is that actually is a pretty decent representation of, of an individual. Like mm -hmm. even if they're only posting the best parts of themselves, they're, they're representing to you what they aspire to be. Most of the time when I jump on Facebook, I can expect to see two people who should be homies arguing about some superficial thing that r really doesn't impact either of them as individuals. It's nice to have a friend who is just lifting people up and then just showing you this awesome cuisine that he just created. <laughs> so, you know, and again, it's just that that comfort level um, that I've been able to find the past few years. Um, I love wrestling. I think if you watch my social media, you know I love wrestling, too. Um, I don't talk about wrestling much on like Facebook. I do like Twitter. Um, but, you know, in wrestling, there's this idea of the bad guy and it's called a heel. Yeah. Um, and so I was always like, man, I'm tired of being the bad. I want to be like, the, I want to be like the, the bad. Guy. I've been the good guy all my life. Like, I want to be a bad. Guy. I want to be the bad boy. I want to be the heel. Like the women love the bad guys, right? Women love bad boys, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, that's you know, that's just not me. And I, and, you know, again, it's just you know, being comfortable in my own skin, and to be like, you know, nope, I'm just a goofy, weird, awkward dude who likes to cook, um, who likes to dress nice, um, who makes like super random like jokes and you know um one thing i've also learned you know i've had a uh, you know I, I i constantly say mentors or mentors of people in my life i've been blessed with amazing people who have you know took the time to like talk to me and you know tell me things and i've had one mentor um and one of his sayings was um vulnerability is a new sexy uh, and i think as men like vulnerable no like that's not strong you know um, and I'm still trying to work through what I perceive as masculinity, right? Because I think sometimes I get hung up on, you know, this is how a man will behave, right? But, you know, um, I, you know, I like telling people like, hey, I had a bad day or, hey, this was really rough or, hey, I lost at this. This didn't work out um, because I found so many people can relate to that more so than, hey, I just got this grant um, to do mental health work. You know, that's awesome. Like, oh, Daryl, go Daryl. But like, hey, this probably didn't work out. This meal, I bombed. <laughs> Uh, quick story. I know we got to start wrapping up, but, um, I remember, um, uh, again, women, I was dating this girl and I really wanted her to come by cause she was in town cause we were, we were doing long distance dating. She, she lived about two hours away, um, in the country. 
Um, and she was in town um, in Louisville because her her uh, girlfriend was getting married and they were going to do like the bridal stuff and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, hey, come over and, you know, I'm going to cook you this bomb ass dinner. And this is before I knew what I was doing. Right. <laughs> so, like, I try to make risotto and risotto is hard if you know what you're doing. Like risotto is extremely pain in the ass. You have to constantly stir it. You kind of have to add like your liquid or your broth or your white wine and stuff like that. And if you don't stir it like every five minutes, it sticks and it burns. So like I tried to make this risotto and like I tried to put some herbs in it. I got tarragon because it said just fresh herbs. Um, if anybody out there is interested in cooking, tarragon tastes like straight licorice. I hate licorice. Like black licorice? Like the, yeah, uh, it's just. It's licorice, yeah. Yeah, it's just a really like strong. Uh, tarragon and fennel are two French um, herbs. So a lot of French cooking use them, but use them moderately, right? Because they have a very strong taste. You don't need a lot to get what you need the recipe that said put a bunch of fresh herbs so i took a handful of it and just threw it in there so like it's burnt it's sticky it tastes like licorice <laughs> i made the salmon i knew how to make salmon at that point but like i tried to make like this white wine sauce i know how to make a white wine sauce that shit was just like some gray sludge i made like some squash that it was so terrible and she didn't make it and i was like thank god universe that you <laughs> that you made her so busy she could not have this awful ass meal because that shit was terrible <laughs> But now I've seen some of the things you cook. You can cook a bomb ass meal now. Oh yeah, yeah. That's uh, awesome, man. That's all about. That's one of the themes that I want this podcast to have is personal growth. Where you are now uh, does not necessarily represent where you're going to be a month from now or a year from now. Um, and hopefully, if we can all continue to just try to grow and to just understand each other better and to love each other more, you know these problems that we see ourselves facing are not insurmountable. If we can find the humanity that exists within all of us and approach each other with love and compassion. Mm -hmm. You know, I, um, you know, I've struggled with like, you know, suicidal ideation and things of that nature and depression. Um, and I think for me, it's, you know, what I have to remind myself is, you know, I, I should, under good circumstance, I should have a lot of life left to live, right? So for me, I can make, I struggle making a lot out of singular moments. Um, but like, you know, I still have, you know, at least 20 more years, right? I still, you know, I should live to be 75, you know, to the average American age for American male. Um, I'd like to see you hit about 110. You know, probably could probably do something like that you know most of the men in my family live long i think like my grandfather you know when he passed away he was like 83 nice uh, my grandpa right now on my mom's side he's 82 uh, my great grandmother was like 90 so like i should live for a while so for me like you know i hate to fail because before it was like like oh this is like just gonna be like a, like a scarlet letter on me if like i fail like everyone's like oh look at that loser over there he he failed at his meal or he failed at running for metro council but it's like when i realized like people don't think like that like you are your own worst critic um you know i've gotten so much love from people who are like daryl we're proud of you for just running um, i'm not gonna lie that was like one of the biggest things over my head like you know during during covid and like i said going through depression it was like what if i don't win and i wasn't afraid of my opponents but i was afraid of you know, what does it mean if I don't win and how are people going to view me? And, you know, the outpouring has just been like just positive. And like what I would love to tell anybody if, if the theme is positivity is just like, you know, people are kinder to you than you think they'll be. You know, I think we are our own worst enemies. A lot of times we we can really beat ourselves up. 
And then even if if stuff don't work out, you for the most part you probably have time to fix it. You know, if this if this thing don't work out, there's enough time for something else and something better to work out. Yeah, and you can grow from it and you can learn lessons. This has been a great podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come here and do this. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure, Mitch. Um, when you even told me about the podcast and asked me to be a subscriber, um, which I am, I'm a subscriber awesome. to nice. uh, Just Friends. Um, I was like, man, this is like a, a Hall of Fame of like the PRP cool kids. So I was like, <laughs> to be on the show, I was like, man, that's that's pretty cool. So thank you. Heck no, man. I really appreciate it, dude. We're gonna have to do it again. We'd love to. I would love to get a couple of other people in the room next time we do it and have a little hang. Oh yeah. All right, brother. Well, uh, thank you so much, man. Thank you. Until next time. All right. All right. Bye, man. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there it is. That's the podcast. Daryl is an awesome guy. He's doing so much for his community, for our community. Um, And we should really show him love and just make sure that we're reaching out to him and showing him support because he's an awesome person and he's doing great things. Guys, if this is your first time listening to Just Friends and you like what you're hearing, make sure you're checking out the Facebook page, Just Friends Podcast. Make sure you're joining the Facebook group, Just Friends Podcast Community. It's a great place for guests and listeners to be able to interact with one another and have conversations and share in our beautiful community. Also, check out the Instagram page, JustFriends.Podcast. And most of all, guys, if you really want to help out the show, Head over to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and rate us. Leave us a review. Let people who are checking out the show know what you think. Um, That could encourage listenership, which would be an amazing, amazing thing. And if you're really, really invested, check out the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Mitch Makes Podcasts. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I really do need to invest a lot more time and love into the Patreon page. Um, But, you know, this is already quite the endeavor just making the podcast so if if you appreciate what you're getting from listening to these conversations that i'm so lucky to have um, and and you value what we're creating here and you want to show that value with a monetary donation patreon.com forward slash mitch makes podcasts is the place to check that out guys i haven't done a shout out like this in a while but if you're interested in being on the show or if you want um if you have a specific guest in mind who you think would do a great job reach out to me let me know what you think i'm all ears Guys, I know things are crazy right now. COVID is still rampant and seems like it might be popping off again. And then we have a lot of other tumultuous things going on and in our society. And it's more obvious now than ever how much we need to remember to see each other's humanity, to treat each other with love, respect, and kindness, and to try our best to do everything we can to love our neighbors as ourselves. if you're a Christian or um, <clears throat> whatever your point of view is. Um, no matter what, that's a great bit of wisdom. Uh, so, you know, make sure you're treating each other with respect and kindness. Make sure you're showing yourself that same respect and kindness. Take care of yourselves. I love you all. I hope you have a fantastic week. Bye. Bye.